podcast is brought to you by Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, 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 here we go. Everybody be cool, this is a robbery! Need you cool. Are you cool? I'm cool. Are you gonna bark all day, little doggy, or are you gonna bite? Oh, I'm sorry, did I break your concentration? I'm a killer. I'm a murdering bastard. You know that? And there are consequences to breaking the heart of a murdering bastard. You really only need to hang mean bastards. But mean bastards, you need to hang. You hear me talking, hillbilly boy? I'm gonna get medieval on your ass. You're the shot to this? Nah, I don't think so. More like chewed out. I've been chewed out before. Hey, is everybody okay? The fucking hippies aren't. That, that's for goddamn sure. Kill white folks and they pay you for it. It's not the light. Starting to see pictures, ain't you? Gentlemen, you have my curiosity. Now you have my attention. Welcome back, all you inglorious pastors, to the Church of Tarantino podcast. I am your host, the Reverend Scott Kay, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to our second installment of Under the Influence, where each month during our second season, myself, along with my special guest, will take an inquisitive look at two films that influenced Tarantino to see if he just referenced them in his films or blatantly ripped them off. Our second film that we will be placing under the microscope is from the first script he ever wrote that was directed by the late Tony Scott, 1993's True Romance. The films that we will be reviewing this month, Shigehiro Ozawa's 1974 kung fu action film, The Street Fighter, and John Woo's 1987 crime film, A Better Tomorrow 2. But before we get this investigation underway, it is my pleasure to welcome to the show the duo known as the Asian Cinema Film Club, making his third appearance, Mr. Elwood Jones, and making his very first appearance, Mr. Stephen Palmer. Welcome, gentlemen, and may Tarantino be with you always. Thank you for having us. I hope I didn't butcher Mr. Ozawa's first name. I practice it quite a bit, so I Americanize it. So, If anyone's listened to our show, they'll be thinking, <laughs> how can he say these names better than us? Well, yeah, practice- Elwood, there's always a double take every time Elwood says it, he's waiting for me to correct him. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely Japanese is not easy, so I congratulate you on doing that. Um, as Stephen said, we're the only show which has got a disclaimer for the amount of names we will mispronounce over the course of an episode. So it's like a thousand syllables in this thing. <laughs> Japanese is the easiest, really, because you just say what you see. 
it you just split it yes. up into, you just split it up into the syllables and you just say what you see there's nothing too clever chinese mate forget yes. about it <laughs> yes very very tough i have bought quite even, a few and we rarely cover thai films for that very reason he's <laughs> 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 got more than 100 syllables we can't do it so gentlemen what brought you together for the asian cinema film club i kind of got a little inside interact in our last episode but i'd like to hear your version of this mr palmer okay so i've been doing stuff around Asian cinema for a long time 20 years nearly now Wow! which started off with a personal blog which then got me writing for a website called easternkicks.com that's still going today so I did lots of sort of uh, reviews and interviews Elwood reached out to the site as part of his is it Mad, Bad and Dangerous show that you used to do still do? Mad, Bad and Downright Strange Showcase that's, uh, was the, based, that's so. the fella so, so yeah Elwood reached out and said would anybody from the site be interested in talking specifically a couple of films one is um, Takashi Miike's Audition and Fruit Chan's Dumplings Ooh, love that I volunteered. We did a we did a show. Elwood lost the recording. We did it again. <laughs> and then somehow he said, Would you like to continue this on? Because it was a good show. And we seemed to have a good rapport. And it went from being something we did sort of every month or so. And now we do it pretty much bi-weekly and the structure of the show stayed the same elwood brings a movie then i bring a movie occasionally we have a guest there's a couple of things like at christmas we'll do a kaiju movie or something like that but it works well i think and correct me if i'm wrong listeners because <laughs> we're coming from very different places so elwood as he's no doubt explained already he's a fan of cult cinema he's a fan of martial arts movies and and kaiju movies and weird horror films don't think i'm mislabeling you there Elwood <laughs> no 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 you carry on you carry on I'm, co I'm coming from a place sort of two sorts of places one is sort of art house cinema and one is just standard commercial cinema romantic comedies and and things like that and what that means is we're both able to introduce each even you know even Asian cinema is a wide church it's a bigger church than the Tarantino church oh, in is. terms of countries and languages and cultures and guess what they have all the same films we do as well so what's really cool is, is that we can both bring films from our own you know our own personal taste introduce them to each other and then bizarrely sometimes we'll pick a film that the other one liked and and what's really cool is i just i think about 98 percent of the time we both end up loving the other person's suggestion there's been a couple of classics <laughs> what a film we <laughs> just haven't dug it at all and there's a couple of times vice versa but in over 100 episodes it's really we've just enjoyed the journey and we've still got a pile as tall as a, the eiffel tower of films that we both want to bring to the show so it's going to keep on going for a while yet that's awesome you know i've said it on my show before and this is the perfect time to say because it's part of true romance but it's just like i've always felt like when clarence is done watching these three kung fu movies that we're going to talk about and he just wants to get pie and talk about it. i've always felt that this to me is what my podcasting journey is is meeting people across the ocean right now talking to people i never would have had an opportunity to do so without this love of it and it's just cool to to sit around and geek out for a couple hours and talk about things you like and just you know have those conversations that are just fun the great thing about you know the internet and podcasting is that you get to reach out to people that you never thought you would and you can talk about the things you like and you know i don't even do it for listenership i'm glad i got it but at the same time if three people listen to it i still would do it i wouldn't stop doing because it it's just it's more about the conversation than and i just hope that the people who listen enjoy the conversations we have couldn't agree more mate yeah absolutely it's always nice to have listeners. Oh, yes. And, and to know that you're, not, that, that yes. you're not talking in 
into into the ether but we've got a wonderful community that's sort of grown up on on facebook to to the end that we've actually got our biggest fan has been on the show twice <laughs> you know she's got so into it that she's been wow. able to come and put us to shame with her knowledge <laughs> <laughs> that's always awful when you have a guest on you're like shit you know more than i do you're like god damn it <laughs> no, <laughs> i thought was, i was really was, versed in this <laughs> she was marvelous but the, the, you know that's just that's just the that's just the fun of what we do that we've been able to you know we've been able to build a really nice community and you know when elwood tells me let's face it i'm always the guest right elwood elwood does all the hard work he does all the editing and and and, and stuff like that and when he tells me sometimes how many th- how many people have listened to some of our shows i'm like what on earth is going on i know but we enjoy the chat and that's that's the that's the key thing and i'm hoping that this show you know the first season went really well but now that i'm i'm not stepping away from his movies but now that we're kind of talking about them but indirectly and then we're talking about other things and looking for the references i know that i'll have the diehard fans stay on i'm just wondering if the casual tarantino fan will continue to listen to this you know if they don't they don't that's perfectly fine but for those hardcore fans listening right now i'm going to continue doing this because this this is the stuff that we really like about tarantino this is the stuff for us tarantino fans that we enjoy it's it's where did his references come from where, where did he get these ideas it's that digging into the nitty-gritty and finding up more so that's what we're doing for season two now is there any other podcast that you do steven because as i introduced mr elwood both times especially for the first episode of season two the man does like 52 goddamn podcasts i mean he must just be raking in cash hand over fist because he is just doing all kinds of podcasts at this point (laughs) so mr palmer do you have any other podcasts or are you just on this one and you're just smart and you don't have to do a whole lot of extra work i am (laughs) i have cut my hands on a couple of other things however the heart and soul, the prime reason, the prime thing is is, is the Asian Cinema Film Club. I often guest on the Eastern Kicks Ooh. podcast as well. Um, but you know, that's just more because I'm a I'm a long term contributor and, and sometimes doing a bit of cross pollination doesn't hurt. There's a few Asian cinema podcasts and we we're all one big happy family. I also edit and produce a podcast that I sometimes go on but try not to called In Their Own League, mm. which is a podcast about I'm going to butcher its ethos, but basically females in cinema. So not just directors, but cinematographers and editors and actresses or or, or female stories in in the widest sense. So I try not to go on the podcast because I don't think you need another male voice on that. You don't need a mansplain it? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I do do that. And I also do another podcast, which is going to make everybody laugh, which I do with sort of one of our... um, on a colleague that's been on a couple of our shows, Emily, where we are covering every single Barbie movie that's ever been made, all the Barbie animated movies, <laughs> um, which is actually coming to fruition because with, yes, the, with, it is. with, the, with the big movie coming out next year or later will this year. Will you be covering now, that? We will be covering that indeed. Wow. We've, we've done nearly 20 of the animated movies. We're about wow. two thirds the way through. And actually it's got suddenly got a surprising amount of traction, but I'm guessing really? that's because of the, um, the new Barbie movie, the new Barbie movie. So yeah, so we'll be covering that. So, so I'm a, I've got lots of varied interests. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, you do. It's not, it's not just that, but that that's cool because that's what makes cinema great. But every time I mention it, everyone laughs. Have there been any good Barbie films that you've watched? Like, have you been surprised that you're like, oh, I actually like this? So the the idea is Emily grew up with those movies, and my mm-hmm. kids grew up with those movies. So I've I'd seen a lot of them already because yep. my kids love those movies, and so we just sort of be an interesting contrast, sort of thirty something and a fifty something talking about these movies. But do you know what? Some of them are pretty good. You know. 
Yes, they're 75 minute long animated movies. They're not Pixar. They're never going to be that. <laughs> but actually, they're really kind of interesting because, you know, again, maybe, you know, because we're all guys, we didn't play with Barbies. We don't. But it, it's actually it's actually quite a feminist thing going on. There's some really interesting stuff as Barbie as a hero is very not like what you thought, think it might be. There's all kinds of different stories. Some of them are drawing, you know, they're sort of not retellings, but the reimaginations of classic stories like The Three Musketeers or Rapunzel or something like that. And others are just their own thing. And I would say the vast majority of them we've bloody enjoyed. And some of them are really fucking good. Mm, <laughs> but good. I'm not going to tell people to go out and watch Barbie and the Three Musketeers unless they really want to. <laughs> but they are better than you might it think. It does sound weird from a 50-year-old man, doesn't it? Like, hey, yeah. kids, you need to watch this Barbie movie. <laughs> the Musketeers. But the show, you know, the, the show is more about the chit-chat and the, and the like that we do, you know, I guess I guess like a lot of podcasts. But yeah, that's so that's the other one. So yeah, I don't do as many as Elwood, but I think mine are... Nicely varied. There you have it, my my listeners. If you're a Barbie fan out there, what's the name of the Barbie one again? So it's all part of um, Emily's. It's called um, Why This Film. Why This Film. Okay. WTF. It took me about six months to realize why it was called Why This Film. <laughs> <laughs> so she basically alternates. So she she looks at a film with, with somebody else every couple of weeks or so. And then in the alternate episode, she does a Barbie show with me. Ah. So, yes, there we go. Interesting. Yeah, I don't think there's going to be a lot of crossover between Tarantino and you uh, never Barbie know. animated you movies. Never but know. we shall see. You never well, know. Well, we, we can bring Margot Robbie into it, can't we? That's the crossover, right? <laughs> there it is. There it is. The Six Degrees of Tarantino. Now, Stephen, as, as we're going to keep Elwood quiet for a little bit, he might be out drinking. Hey, and is he still here? I don't know. He may not be here since I'm the only one on yeah, camera. Still, yeah, all I see is names right now. now. Sorry, this is the old Stephen show. It will yes, change it is. when we start yes. talking about the films, I promise now, you. Now, you get a chance to have your guest questions as Elwood got his very, very first time. And so they are very the same as they've grown over the year. And now that I've got newer guests on, which I'm very excited about. I love growing the guest spots as, as I'm going on. And plus, this year, I want to bring in people who are also so have a real foothold of the areas that Tarantino uh, has crossed into. And since we're in the Easterns of his his catalog, I feel like you two are one of the best to bring on since your podcasts are solely on them. Now, your very first question, and it does not have to be answered yes. It could be any answer you have. Are you a Tarantino fan? Okay. I'm going to say kind of, sort of. Perfectly fine. I like this. I don't, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to go to the church and act there and say, no, I hate the man, because that wouldn't be true. I have some issues, okay? Perfectly fine. Yes, please. I think sometimes I look at his work and I feel like he's had somebody who's been very lucky that he's been able to make use of his excellent video collection and that he had a patron that enabled him to do that, okay? And that patron, I don't think he's properly distanced himself from. No, <laughs> I would agree Harvey with Weinstein. you. Yes. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and I think I do struggle with him a bit because he hasn't really addressed that. However, just because he was a lucky bastard doesn't mean I should hate him. And I think he's got many strengths as a movie maker. I think his dialogue and scripting is excellent. I think he has very good choice when he does. Let's just say borrow from other people, yeah? And he ha there is originality in there. And he is probably one of the few true auteurs to use a horrible French, here's the cinema kind of phrase, that exists in modern cinema. So he is able, because of his, you know, because of how he was patronised, patronised, patronised by Weinstein, to have a, you know, he, he's never had to really compromise on the films that he wants to put out. What's the worst that's happened to him? He had to split Kill Bill into two movies. 
which probably Fair. did it a favour. So, yeah, and, and I've seen all bar one of his movies. Which one? Hateful Eight. I've still never got around to seeing Hateful Eight okay. because I just don't I just don't have three and a half hours free. <laughs> and <laughs> nah, I don't know why I don't know why I've missed it. All the others I've seen at the cinema. All the others I've seen at the time of release. So yeah, he's not a director I hate at all. I just uh, there are there are some provisos around him, and not all of them are his fault. Does that make sense? Is that a good enough answer? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, my first season, I was hoping to have only Tarantino fans on because it's weird to talk about his films and not like the films. Mm. However, season two, I'm not looking for people to fall at his feet. I would like to hear the dissent, the different voices. It can become an echo chamber after a while. You know, mm. obviously, I love him, but I also am really into hearing why people may or may not like him or their or their takes on him because I don't want it to become a just a mm. cult. You probably won't change how I feel about him, but you may actually open my eyes about... You're absolutely right. He has been very lucky in the fact that, you know, the Weinsteins, whether it was because of, you know, how amazing... You know, Pulp Fiction landed for them, and they're just like, you know, this guy's going to make, he's our golden goose, and we're going to ride with him. You know, you're right. He and maybe a Scorsese, very few people have the open-ended ability to do what they want with their films. So I love the different uh, voices coming on and getting to see the side of the why people don't like because I always want to know that, too. I want to see why. Like you said, there are people out there probably aren't going to like Asian cinema, but you do, and that's not going to change your mind, but you you like to hear the differences. What You know, what is it about Asian cinema that you don't like or you don't get? If we all like the same thing... The world would be a very boring place. Oh, exactly. God, yes. Yes, and we wouldn't get cool stuff being made, like Barbie movies that are animated. Like you wouldn't have, you know, That would never get made, you know? We would never have any of these things that happen. Or maybe that's all that would get and made. And I'll be honest yeah. with you, I would love to see Tarantino direct a Barbie animated film. I That would just be something. But what is your gateway drug, or since you're technically an outlier, which is awesome, what is the first movie that you remember seeing of Tarantino's that, you know, you knew oh, that it was well, his? the gateway was at the beginning. I was a student when Reservoir Dogs came out. I saw it at the cinema. Like I said, I've seen all the wall at the cinema apart from Hateful Eight. I'm not a complete hater at all. <laughs> no, no, um, I'm not saying I like, I like I like the films. I was just, you know, just, just applying a little bit of criticism. So, yeah, Reservoir Dogs and Reservoir Dogs. was huge in England. It, it was, was huge yeah. there. Like, it really got its footing from the English. Mm. I went I went out and bought the soundtrack album the next day. I've bought it on video cassette and, you know, love Pulp Fiction. I mean, who doesn't love Pulp Fiction? You know, it's, it's you can't like Tarantino, not like Pulp Fiction. And I've been with him all through it. Just hatefully, just is this gap. And actually, you've reminded me of this and I have actually just dug out my copy of it. I, I'm actually going to fix that missing, uh, that missing link this week. I'm telling you, it's excellent. I think some of his best writing. I think you'll really enjoy it. It's a, it's a different Tarantino film than most of his. It's, it's become my third favorite of his. But again, you know, you watch it and then uh, I'd like to hear your your comments on you know what you what you truly think of it i'll have to let you know so what is your favorite tarantino movie you may have already told us but i'll ask it anyways no i don't think i have and i struggle with it because there's only one i don't like right which one's that which isn't the question that you asked no no I, that's it's a good answer too i want to know i don't like once upon a time in hollywood oh okay and i don't like once upon a time in hollywood not because of the film itself, which I think is beautifully made, beautifully acted. Um, the scene with Margot Robbie watching herself as Sharon Tate in the cinema is just perfect. Yeah, One of the most really perfect is. things in the world. It's general thesis. I don't agree with that. The world would have been a better place if the Manson mob didn't kill Sharon Tate. And it took us three and a half hours to get there. Very fair. And then doesn't show us what the alternate universe would have looked like. And true story, I was in the cinema and it was packed. And so everyone gets up to go. And and in the cinema going experience, 
in the UK. I have been to the cinema in the States. It's a different kind of experience. Normally, we just keep to ourselves, eat our popcorn and shuffle out and just first to the toilets is, is pretty much or the bathroom, as you would say, is the um, is, is what we do. But one lady went up to the usher and started saying, but that didn't happen. She was killed by them. <laughs> as if the usher could do anything about it. I mean, he, he, he was like... It's just some spotty little teenager who's just there to clean up the popcorn was being challenged on it. So yeah, it's not it's not a problem with the film per se. It's a problem with the the general idea that the film's got. I also think, you know, he's a bit of an apologist for Polanski and he had an opportunity not to be such in that film and he didn't take the opportunity. Anyway, my favourite, I think, the one I have watched the most is Kill Bill Part 1, which comes as no surprise because I'm a nation cinema guy, right? Yes. <laughs> it's, it's just obvious. But that, for me, is his most imaginative... It's, it's a film he's stolen most things from. Fine. I'm all right. It, like I say, it's got a good video collection. If you're going to copy or be influenced or homage something... Do it from the best. And we'll talk about that more, I suspect. Yes. Especially when we talk about the Street Fighter tonight. Went into that little anime bit. When you're watching it for yeah. the first time at the cinema, it's like, that's bold. Yes. That's really bold, Yes, right? it is. Very few movies have been able to do that and not bring the movie off the rails. Uh, absolutely. It does that and it works. So it's very episodic, but to me it works. Yes. I don't think part two works quite as well, but I quite like that. But Kill Bill part one, I will watch. I've watched that tens of times where some of the others I've maybe have only watched a couple of times because I just think it's just got so much going on. And funnily enough, you know, there are things that we've done in our show that's made me even like that film even more because we'll see, you know, you'll watch something like Lady Snowblood and you'll see where final, the sort of the falling leaves bit uh, yes. scene is coming, you know, what it's based on and why he was influenced by that. So, yeah, there you go. We will be covering that when we get to Kill Bill, Volume 1 this summer, which seems so weird to say. <laughs> like, five to six months from now, kids, we will be covering Lady Snowblood. Probably have to invite us back then, because Lady Snowblood is one of my favorite films of all time. And the sequel is garbage. That's just my opinion. Uh, uh, yeah, it's just different. <laughs> it's... You know, it's like after seeing Lady Snowblood, you're like, wow. And then you see the next one, you're yeah. like, oh, what happened? You know? you're like, <laughs> yeah, we didn't need it's... a second. It's different, but we get that a lot in sequels. In, yes, uh, you do. And again, we'll talk about that later as well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, in your opinion, what is Tarantino's most underappreciated film? So I think my answer to this is probably the answer most people give. And I'm going to say Jackie Brown. I've been getting Jackie Brown or Death Proof. Those are the two that constantly are the like the usual the choice. It's, it's Jackie Brown or it's Death Proof. I, I can't fucking stand Death Proof. I forgot I can't stand that. I think that's... Uh, well, you know what? <laughs> Elwood loves it. <laughs> I know he does. I know. Which is the great thing about me and Elwood, because we can violently disagree on, on stuff. I, I just think... Yeah, I'm not going to talk about that, but Jackie no Brown... I remember seeing that at cinema and actually walking out quite disappointed. I'm there with you. It, it's hard. It's a hard follow up after Pulp I Fiction. I didn't get it, and I thought, well, he's got the trick. He's got the Rashomon thing going at the end, where you know we're re-seeing some scene from multiple viewpoints. That was kind of cool, but the general story itself didn't dig it at all. Over the years, I've revisited <laughs> it two or three times. As you become the age, <laughs> well, as you become age, as you become more experienced in watching films, you know, and that, you learn a lot more about that style of movie, not just sort of the black exploitation stuff that Pam Greer is famous for but Elmore Leonard the whole thing I'm my understanding of what he's trying to do and his implementation of it and actually I think it's probably his smartest film I think it's got I see a lot of people call it slight but I think it's actually got more of a script more themes more ideas going on than many of his other films which I think sometimes can be a little um little surface level 
and not much depth, whereas I think Jackie Brown has got depth. And yeah, it's the difficult fourth album. <laughs> um, <laughs> is it fourth album or third album for him? I third, third, it's the yeah, third film, yeah. 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 You know, and, and obviously you're going to compare it to the behemoth that it was Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Whereas, and I think a lot of people were just disappointed because it wasn't Pulp Fiction. John Travolta and, 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 and Samuel L. Jackson talking shit in a car or, you know, it, it, it's much more of a character piece. I suspect in many years when there is a retrospective when when he's, you know, when we're all long gone and people go back and look at it, I think you'll find that Jackie Brown will actually have a legacy much higher than it's possibly rated today. I would agree. And I, as I've grown seeing it in my 20s and now seeing it in my late 40s, as we just did the 25th anniversary of it last year, I mean, it's a big difference in 25 years because now I see myself as a character. So as a 20-year-old, I couldn't see this you know, mature love story. And now, and the age I'm at, I'm like, oh yeah, no, that makes sense. I'm, I'm now seasoned enough to understand what they were talking about what, and what they're going through. So I agree with you on this one. Now, who is your all-time favorite character in the vast multiverse that is the tarantino verse yeah well for me it's going to be the bride it's a good choice <laughs> she's a great choice it's going to be uma thurman in some way shape or form i don't really know why i like uma thurman so much because she's a weird looking girl but as a muse for tarantino she has worked wonders and i think the bride yes across two films but she, she still works in two ways one is she's a very simplistic character that's just mm -hmm. driven by revenge right and and she's and and you know I could have said L Driver as well in that sense yeah I quite like that yeah. character I love I love all I love all the girls in those films to be honest with you I think the fight scene between um Berman and Fox at the oh, beginning of Kill so Bill good. is also yes. one of the greatest things ever in the world but um I, it's, it's yeah I just again I just think Thurman has just got this charisma and. Tarantino just is somehow able to imbue her with something special. She's a great actress, but she's special in those films. And she's the one. Who, other ones, are, you know, Mr. Pink springs to mind, but that's just <laughs> from a few lines. You know what I mean? There's yeah. a few quotable lines. The Bride I will always go back to, but, you know, that's because I do hold Kill Bill Part 1 up you do. to a much higher standard than the others. And lastly, before we can bring back in your cohort, Mr. Elwood, who is... Probably doing lines of cocaine as we speak. Uh, as usual. Whose career would you like to see Tarantino give a boost to with his last film, if in fact it is his last film? So behind the scenes view here, you did give me these questions earlier. So I'm not just coming off. The I didn't know. Yes, yes. <laughs> so I thought this 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 is one I struggled with, right? It's a really excellent question. Because he has been, you know, he has, I would say, you know, he was part of the, you know, he helped resurrect Bruce Willis second time round. I, Agreed. Know, he, he's got a, he's got a history of this. He obviously Pam Greer. We've already talked about brought her back yep. to this. But somebody I thought would be really interesting to see him direct, and I don't think he's done it. I, don't, I know he hasn't done anything with her, unless you're now going to tell me I'm wrong. And I'm not sure she needs necessarily a career boost, but I'd be fascinated to see what he could do with somebody like Aubrey Plaza. Uh, somebody yes. just yes. just a little bit weird, because Aubrey Plaza is a little bit weird. I think she's marvelous. I love her so much, and she's one of those people I. Just love to see in anything, but I think it would be really interesting in that in that famed tenth movie. Or yes, movie, no, I think she it. would be spectacular. I think that would be a that would be a real challenge for him mm -hmm. because you know she's not his type. I don't think. I, but I think she could be his type because well, of I, how I think great it, she is and, and, and how you know so... fluid she is in her ability to take on so many different roles. Oh my god! And she can do comedy, and she can do horror, and she can do 
maybe not action, but that doesn't matter. I just would love well, to see what he could do with her. Emily the Criminal. She Indeed, showed some real absolutely. dramatic depth in that. Absolutely. And um, things like Black Bear. She's just done some really mm-hmm. wacky stuff. And she's just such an interesting person. She is. I don't I don't know if it would ever kind of happen, but that that was that she was the one that came to mind. Just and 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 that wasn't just about boosting her career, but it would be nice to see mm-hmm. Tarantino challenge with a really interesting and unique actress. I think it could not boost her career, but maybe get her out of the indie darling phase of her career mm. right now. You know, maybe finally give people the the notion that hey, this woman can fucking act and you mm. are you're wasting your time in all these beautiful starlets. This woman, she's got the beauty, she's got the charisma, she hits all the ranges, like she can be everything you need her to be. I don't know. That I, I would love to see it. You're the second person who's mentioned that and each time I've heard it, I'm like, yes. I don't know why I didn't think about it the first time I thought about it, but as soon as it's been said, I'm like, that seems like that might be the right answer. I'm glad I'm not alone in this. The, the fact that somebody else has chosen it makes me very happy. <laughs> it wasn't that crazy. The time has come to find out if Quentin Tarantino is a cinematic genius who has put his own spin on the references he's cherry-picked from some of his favorite films that have influenced his career. Or if he's, as his detractors say, a talentless hack who has blatantly ripped off moments from those films and claimed them as his own. This month's suspect is True Romance. Let the investigation begin. All right, well, I will now bring the duo together. You decide who's Batman and who's Robin, or, I'm sorry, that's American. You decide who's Sherlock and who is... Watson. And who's Watson. Thank you. What a dumb American. Actually, I know who's Sherlock and who's Watson just by your voices, but that's not fair. So you decide between (laughs) you who's Sherlock who's Watson. Now, this is an interesting movie for me to discuss, and some of my fans are probably like, why are we discussing a movie that he technically didn't direct? And I'll explain. I had to pick 12 movies for the season, so I decided to split up Kill Bill into Volume 1 and Volume 2 because they are both completely different films and have completely different references in them, even though it is one film, and that has been said by him, and I believe it is one film, but it was released differently, and clearly Kill Bill Volume 1 is Eastern-themed, and clearly Kill Bill Volume 2 is his spaghetti Western-themed version of those two films. So they have different references that I want to cover. Dropping Natural Born Killers because that is a great film but is so stretched away from the way anything Tarantino would do. We're still going to do From Dust Till Dawn because while Tarantino wrote it and also acts in it, his best friend directs it and there's still a lot of notes in there and the two of them obviously worked on it together so that feels like it's an easy one we can go through. But True Romance, even though he did not direct, I feel... Tony Scott did an amazing job at making this feel like a Tarantino film. It has all the notes and beats, and I've heard it said, and I actually like this, it's a Tarantino movie on cocaine. And I absolutely 100% agree with him. I really do feel like they did make this movie as close as he could, and he kept a lot of the stuff in it that I would be surprised that most people would get rid of from Tarantino's script. And the first thing is, before we actually jump into the actual films, but this is how we're going to lead in, why do we think Tony Scott kept the references of the films in the script in this film? And the main ones being obviously the Street Fighter and obviously when we get to see A Better Tomorrow too. and there's some other ones in there. But up until this point, and I've looked back at it and thought about it, not many directors put other people's films in their film as a part of like the everyday occurrence of, of human life. So why do between the two of you, why do you think that Tony Scott decided to keep these references from Tarantino's script in his actual film. So, yeah, when it came to the script, I think the fact that Tony Scott does not know a film that he can slot in, and because Tarantino at this point, he had already given the Top Gun speech, 
um, of how Top Gun's about the gay fighting force of America. And it's that <laughs> wonderful thing. And he's still like, trust that if Tarantino's like giving references to things that he knows what he's talking about. And these films, they haven't got, at this time, they've not got really got distribution. So they're dirt cheap to pick up the rights for to get things like Better Tomorrow 2, Street Fighter, uh, Return to Street Fighter. These are really cheap things to get hold of that you can pull just go down to Chinatown and pick them up and bootlegs of these films and then to slot them in his film and not really have to worry too much about the rights. So I think Scott had enough sort of faith in Tarantino's references just to like go over and go, this kid knows what he's talking about. He's a video store kid. He knows, let's just uh, roll with this. And you see it when Tarantino did the script doctrine for Crimson Tide. He's got references like Silver Surfer, the sea should not have them. Because he just knows that Tarantino had probably forgotten more about film than he's ever going to know. <laughs> it's true. Um, so he just like he just puts his faith in this kid. He's sort of like, you know, this sounds good. I'm just going to roll with this. This kid clearly knows what it is. And in turn, he creates this impossible fantasy for film fans that we all still hope is going to happen one day. And it's never going to happen where the pretty girl is going to come and spur popcorn on us in a Kung Fu triple feature. As I said to my wife, it's just this impossible fancy that's never going to happen. <laughs> because pretty girls don't go to Kung Fu Triple Features, that's the one. They do if they're hookers and they're paid to. So there is that. Yeah, I always cut that part of the story out. <laughs> Probably smart it's way to do like, it. Probably smart part. She's a pretty girl. She's like being paid by his friends, like going to a Pokemon. It's all like, you know, just uh, give him a, a nice evening. And that's the story we tell when we, <laughs> we tell about the true man's fantasy. Well, outside of major cities, like maybe where Tarantino is, getting the triple bill of a kung fu film is going to be hard to do as well. It depends where you are. I mean, if you're in like Birmingham or London, then yeah, there's places like The Electric, there's The Prince Charles. There's places you can go and see a double feature. Um, uh, if you're out here in the sticks of gospel, no, it's not going to happen. <laughs> so unless someone wants in your house and that may be like a different entirely, <laughs> I think that's called the strangers. Mr. Palmer. Um, I guess some of it I've got to agree with, with Elwood in what he said. I mean, I think showing, what's it called? Diegetic. That's that. I guess that's an extension of what it is where, you know, where, where we're watching a film within a film an mm-hmm. existing film within a film is it's not without precedent i'm just trying to think of an example and anything i can come up with is is in jackie brown when they're watching the babes with gun stuff because i yeah. can't get my head out of tarantino right now <laughs> but um i don't i don't think it's without precedent it's what's what's interesting is sort of um is that tony scott has seemingly just run with that script yeah and I, I don't know how much. I mean, Tony Scott's an interesting, was an interesting director. Was. Anyway, you know, he's done he's done some clearly work for hire stuff. And he's done some clearly, you know, he's always going to be under the shadow of his, um, of Ridley in terms of the real auteur side of things. And so, so, you know, maybe Tony's a little bit more commercial. Well, maybe he's a lot more commercial, but this isn't a commercial film, right? This isn't a film, you know, Tarantino isn't the selling point of this film. So I think, I think, I think I was probably got a lot. He's probably just said, this guy, this, this kid's written a good, a good script i will i will keep to it some weird shit goes on in this film <laughs> still not sure how the gary Oldman thing they've got away with after all these years <laughs> no one's had to apologize for it but um i think it's interesting and it's just i guess you know it's not just about films with with, with tarantino you know he's, he's pop it's pop culture it's you know i think i mentioned before about um you know i went out and bought the reservoir dog soundtrack the guy knows his pop culture right he hasn't just resurrected movies. He stuck in the middle with you, for example. No one remember. No one knew that in the UK, right? Or, he, or really here in America, to be completely honest yeah. with you. And now it's, uh, you know, it's still 
a well-known, you know, that plays, we know what film that comes from and what scene yeah. that comes from. So it's, it's, it's music, it's 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 things like clothing, it's all it's language. He's, you know, the um, Reservoir Dogs, the thing, is it Reservoir Dogs where they talk about the whole thing about Madonna? It is, isn't yes. it? Yes, opens the film, yeah. yep. Yeah, absolutely. So he knows he knows pop culture, and this is a film. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's a very contemporaneous film. So let's bring some pop culture in, and and there's a there is a subculture of American males who like Hong Kong action movies or Japanese action movies. In this case, and we've talked about it before in our own podcast. There's a cult. There's, there are cultural differences between the US and the UK in terms of their consumption of Asian media. Um, usually we talk about it in regards of Godzilla movies, right? Mm-hmm. It's a much bigger thing in America than it ever has been in the UK. And I think the same is true. I'm thinking of, um, oh gosh, what's the film? Oh, would remind me. The Forbidden Kingdom, the sort of the one with Jackie Chan and Jet Li and they... Uh, oh, uh, Monkey. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Sorry, Jet Li is Monkey, isn't he, in this, thinking about it. Um, but yeah, it's basically the young, the, young, the young American kid goes to the... Um, the old fella's video store that's and he, he's getting all these old Shaw Brother movies and then he goes into a fantasy world where um where he takes part in these fantasy movies and Jackie Chan's <laughs> there and Jet Li's there yeah the Forbidden Kingdom it's called um I can't remember the name of the director but that talked to me about a world where the video store was very important right and where the the thrill of buying some badly dubbed Hong Kong action movie or Japanese samurai movie is a cultural thing. And so I think that's that's where it's coming from. It's about this it's about this replaying sort of contemporary cultural influences. I hope that makes sense. It felt a bit rambly, but No, it does. Absolutely. Now, do either of you think having movies that QT loves shown in portions of his films enhance the films? Does it give it more of a grounding in reality to make, I mean, not every film, but I mean, even in Kill Bill Volume 2, we've got Shogun Assassin. There is, I forget which movie it is. I think it might be Crazy Mary or Dirty Larry, Crazy Mary in um, Jackie Brown. And there's a a couple in in his films that he actually plays these movies. Do you feel that that actually enhances it? Or do you think it takes away? I think by having real films within the Tantale films, it certainly helps to establish the Tarantino worlds because there's three distinct worlds within Tarantino cinema. We have the so-called real world, which is like Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, Jack Brown. We have the film within a film world, which is like Kill Bill. So these are the movies that are on like Death Proof is another example, where if like Vincent Vega went to the cinema, this would be the sort of movie he'd see. And then the third, obviously, being his alternate histories, which is like in Glorious Bastards, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where it's sort of like, if I add this element to history, what could have happened? It's very much like Marvel's What If, um, because we know that there was various guerrilla squads in World War II. We know that if, like, the uh, Manson family, they only end up at Cliff's house because they went to the wrong house. They were fully intending to end up at Blansky's house, but instead they end up at the wrong house, and boy, that really... Uh, don't turn out well for them. So <laughs> even the character like Rick Dalton, it's sort of like, if we had this character Rick Dalton, where would he fit on the cinematic landscape? And I know Tarantino's talking about doing a book, which is Rick Dalton's filmography, and he's sort of like going through and taking various films like Grizzly. So like, which character would Rick Dalton be if he was in Grizzly? Which I'm really sort of looking forward to and hope that he follows the uh, cinema speculation on very soon. So I think it's only, if anything, it helps establish these worlds of like what you can expect. And it's almost like setting the rules. Because there's things that happen like when Kill Bill's world it would never happen in Pulp Fiction's world. And I think by having, like, real films, it just sort of really sort of establishes, right, we're in this world, and these are, we as the viewer, especially, like, regular fans, we know the rules and what's to be expected. 
Yeah, and for me, it's a, it's an extension. You know, it's, as, as you were sort of explaining, but there are there are things that link his films together. There's things about Tarantino's film language, right? The, the fact that the same brand of cigarettes is in all his films, yeah? The fact that this is a world where you do have a, a Street Fighter triple bill. That's a a little bit of an alternate universe, maybe. But it also, it's it's just that it's, it's, it's not a Tarantino tick, but it's all just part of his cinematic language is that, you know, I, I might have had a bit of a go at him earlier for ripping other people's films off and, and you know, almost sometimes literally just taking ideas or scenes or shots or character. And, but having those films exist within his universe just builds that reality of the universe i can't think of many directors live action directors that are able to fundamentally put all their films in a it, it doesn't take much to build it into a coherent universe whether some are happening within other films media that you know that we can inception it all we want but i think it, i think it just adds you know and as you said it's not just film isn't it he takes he takes songs that are or, or soundtracks from other films and puts them into his his film. So it's, I think it's just an extension of that. It's, it's probably the most obvious extension of it and everything else actually is a, is a, is a lesser version of that. But yeah, I think, I think it's what kind of, it's one of those things that talks to what is a Tarantino film. It's his style. Yeah, it is. And that's a perfect segue for us to jump in to the first movie. It's time to call our first witness. Our first witness is the 1974 Japanese kung fu film, The Street Fighter, written by Koji Takada and Motohiro Tori, and directed by Shigeru Ozawa. After failing to reach a deal with her enemies, a mercenary karate master decides to protect the daughter of a recently deceased oil tycoon from the evil conglomerate that's after her inheritance, starring Sonny Chiba, Yutaka Nakajima, Gerald Yamada, Milton Ishibashi, Jiro Chiba, and Sue Shihomi, with an IMDb rating of 6.9 and an 81 audience Rotten Tomato score. Now taking the witness stand, The Street Fighter. Now, I had never seen The Street Fighter before. I'd always wanted to because, obviously, True Romance was my gateway drug in, and I've loved True Romance forever. It's coming up on its 30th anniversary this year. And, again... In the first three films that you could put in the Tarantino world, so with Reservoir Dogs, we talk about Pam Greer. And five years later, Pam fucking Greer is in Jackie Brown. In 1993's True Romance, Sonny Chiba is the street fighter, and those are three Sonny Chiba kung fu movies that Clarence is going to go see. And ten years later, Sonny fucking Chiba is in Kill Bill Volume 1. And in 1994, they're sitting in the diner, and Samuel Jackson's character is just going to walk the earth like Kane from Kung Fu. And the star of Kung Fu, who played the titular character Kane, is David Carradine. And 10 years after that movie comes out, David Carradine is motherfucking Bill in Kill Bill Volume 2. So it is kind of an interesting way that a man who has a fan of three actors is able to get them into his fucking movies. It's just always one of those things as a Tarantino fan that always tickles my brain that's like, how the fuck did he pull this shit off? But Sonny Chiba is on screen and he's a bad motherfucker. Now, in this movie, and I'm glad I have you two on because as I was speaking with Steven before Elwood joined us and before we started recording, these movies were not made for American eyes and I fully understand that. And I'm looking back at them now as, Jesus, the next year this movie will be 50 years old. So a lot has changed in filmmaking in 50 years, for sure. I have noticed in these two films, and especially I think even more so in this one, that 
The plots are really kind of loose. They're not exactly, they're very fluid. They're, things just seem to be built around, I would say, action set pieces. And then we just kind of, you know, we try to cobble together the plot through it so we can get these cool action set pieces. But what this film did for me, and I'll, and I'll talk to you about it, is in America, we had Kung Fu Theater here on Saturday, especially in the 80s. And that was my indoctrination into the kung fu genre which is why i think for people my age gen xers why kill bill was such an exciting movie is it was that sudden influx of our childhood being brought back from these kung fu movies that we had seen with the bad dubs and the weird sound effects and everything all the stuff that kind of alabama does in this film when we get to the next movie but to hear the kung fu sound effects again was an unbelievable wave of nostalgia that I did not expect to hit me when I watched The Street Fighter. What is your gentleman's take on this film? And you probably have seen this before, and you have a little bit more insight into the Asian cinema um, than I do. Uh, so what, what do you think about my first couple of statements as we start this movie? Oh, wow. Um, well, The Street Fighter is... If you've not seen The Street Fighter, you are missing such a fun, wonderful time, especially in this era of Japanese cinema. And certainly you get to see Sonny Chiba, young Sonny Chiba, because Sonny Chiba is one of those actors. And I think the only comparison would be Anthony Wong is that you can mark the part the era of his career by the way he looks. And early Sonny Chiba, he is basically the angry gorilla man who is just all sinew, muscle, and it's just there to basically punch and hurt people. <laughs> that is his whole thing. And as he matures in, uh, in age, he's sort of like evolved into like playing like businessmen and Yakuza bosses. And Anthony Wong uh, started off as like greasy thug um, and just like the most awful people. And as he's matured, he's now like the wise master. We see him like playing Ip Man in Ip Man the Final Fight. So it's kind of funny that their careers are sort of on parallel in the sort of characters that they portray. But I think when you look at Street, the Street Fighter, it is his classic Sonny Chiba. This is so like, if you want to know why Keanu Reeves is like in awe of this man, you watch the Street Fighter and you realize that when he's there, like saying, oh, you did the locks. And when they had him on that Japanese uh, talk show, it's like, this is the Sonny Chiba that Keanu Reeves um, is obsessed with. One of the um, interesting things I find about the Street Fighter. So this was the first time I'd seen it as well. So we're, you're in good company. I have seen some of the spin-offs, bizarrely. And we've covered one of the spin-offs on our show, Sister Street Fighter, haven't we, Elwood? We have. That's a wonderfully bonkers time as well. <laughs> that, but... That's totally bonkers, but probably a little bit more inspired from The Man from Uncle than it is from... Anyway, my point was, this is a Japanese film. Japanese, so it's a 1974 Japanese cinema. You know, It's not without martial arts cinema, but the genres, the popular genres of, of Japanese cinema probably in this world would more often be sort of samurai-based or something like that. So Sonny Chiba, to me, is a bit of an outlier. There are martial arts films from, from Japan at this time, but but Sonny Chiba and his status as a martial arts superstar and, a, and somebody who can carry a movie just by his name alone, he's fairly unique. Most of this stuff was going on in Hong Kong or in um, in, in Taiwan at the same time. So, you know, the, those Talk Shaw brothers were not quite at the time of Golden Harvest yet, I don't think. But yes, it's interesting because of that. And what you said is about the way they just feel like it's just action beat after action beat and the plot doesn't make a lot of sense. And I'm going to be honest with you, some of those transitions, like 
hang on, how did we get there? (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's, it's a very easy sort of film to take the piss out of. If you want to, if you're not willing to take that extra step and say, hang on a minute, let's just appreciate the gurning craziness that is Sonny Chief. I mean, I'm not sure he's the greatest actor and, and there's so much of this film, which is just wrong. Oh yeah, I was about to get into yeah. some of this. That was, we'll I was talk, starting. We'll about, I was starting easy. We'll, we'll just, talk about some of yeah. that in a minute. But the point, the point is certainly out of Hong Kong cinema at this time. So you know, we talk about the Shaw Brothers. A lot of this cinema is literally made up on the fly. Yeah, they've mm-hmm. got X days of shooting. They've got X amount of budget. They've got some characters. They might have a broad idea of what they want to do, but really they're making up. You know, the act, they'll have an action director who will, and that may be the star. It may not be. A lot of it is made up on the fly and then if you do something kind of interesting or maybe you hurt a stuntman so he can't come back tomorrow that will impact how the plot goes right <laughs> i also watched this i couldn't get a subtitle copy so i i watched a dub which is something i haven't oh, done for a long long so time good <laughs> so oh. usually usually i'm anti-dub but well like i this said case, this is this is the nostalgia of mm. the 80s kung fu theater here is it's all dub right so there was no subtitles you just got the dubbed version then the dub work was very nostalgic like it was it was like i was transported back to the 80s i was a little kid again and fans who are younger who've never had this experience it's going to suck you're, you're, you're not going to understand like it really is a thing that'll go over your head but if you can somehow work your way into it it is absolutely glorious when you can just listen to the dubs because of how bad they are but also i don't know if you noticed but i rented this on apple on apple tv and in the opening moments of the movie, the warden's voice, whoever's doing the warden's voice, I don't know if he died. I don't know if like the dubbed version got burned. It's like, we got to redo this. The voice changes immediately, and, it, and it's striking. Uh-huh. So I can tell you, and Elwood's going to call me the professor now, but I can tell you why this is. So the film... In the UK, it was an X film. And I don't know what the equivalent would have been at the time in the States. This film was basically cut for content, for violence. And I believe they lost the dub. So so when they released it fully (laughs) again, they had to do new dubbing. You could tell. Even Sonny Chiba's voice dub over his his, his changes. That is why... Because I guess what you've seen is the fully restored version, like yes. seven minutes or something. Different people literally did the dubbing. That's why. They didn't <laughs> dub the whole thing from beginning to end. They just dubbed the missing five or six minutes. And that's why. That's what was enjoyable about the film, even though it's like all over the fucking place. And really, it's just about Sonny Chiba being the Japanese Bruce Lee, as they even bring in Bruce Lee's name in the beginning of the film. They literally say <laughs> it. They, they say, they? yeah, <laughs> he must think he's Bruce Lee. That's exactly what they fucking say. They and then all of Sonny Chiba's mannerisms are just like almost like a slow where he's almost posing like every time he does his moves like you know Bruce Lee was like Wah! and they'd be really quick Sonny does it all like almost like guttural like he's like, like he's got to breathe hard and he's like tensing his body like almost like he's a bodybuilder and he's posing as he's getting ready to do his moves it was just so nostalgic about it that I'm sure some of my listeners who are younger be like this movie's fucking batshit crazy what the fuck are you talking to us about this for I just could not get over the fact that all of a sudden I was like wait a minute, that motherfucker's voice just changed. I'm only a minute and a half into the film. Like, holy shit, we're, I'm in for a ride. Funny you obviously mentioned about the noises he makes, because obviously in this one, he's supposed to be half Chinese, half Japanese. Yes. So his father has taught him this combination of Chinese boxing and karate. Yeah. So the, the noises, this will be Chiba's attempt to replicate the challenge of Chi. 
which we see so familiar in like the Hong Kong scene, where obviously mm-hmm. Bruce Lee was very vocal in it. But with Chiba, he can't get his voice that high, so he has to go the opposite direction, so he's very low, and it's all like animalistic power yes. that he's drawing upon to like power himself. But there's a lot of similarities when you look at how Bruce Lee's characters, he's not a hero. He's gained his abilities through intense training. And we see it with Chiba's version, where basically he's got his home workout, while his friend Ratface punches him <laughs> repeatedly and jumps on him. So... They both are shown as, like, graining power through hard training yeah. rather than just superhuman ability, which we uh, would see more from, like, the Van Dams and the Gals, yeah. which less about the training, just the yeah, superhuman ability to deflect anyone. Well, I found what was one of my the funniest things. I knew I was, I knew I was in for an enjoyable ride is when the, the movie starts as Sonny Chiba pretends to be a monk who is going to go give, I guess, the last rites to this guy who's going to be put to death. And he uses an ancient technique called an oxygen coma, which fucking love it. It causes him to appear to have a heart attack, forcing them to postpone the execution just so he can later fight him down the road. That's exactly what he says to him. Hopefully later we can have a death match. It just was like so fucking ridiculous. But yet it's one of those things like if you can enjoy cinema for cinema's sake, it's so fun. Like if you're one of those people like, you know, you're high flute and you're like "Mm," pinky and they're like, oh, this is not for me. You're not going to enjoy this film at all because it is all over the place. And if if you're not a fan of kung fu theater or kung fu movies, you're not prepared that in almost all of these type of films, <laughs> the police are keystone cops. They they are inept. They all cry. Like, they all run away, and they make these weird noises, and they're scared little children. It's been such a long time since I've seen one of these films that it took me a minute to get back into it, but it was just so much fun to watch these old tropes come back to life and be like, oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot about how these films used to go. And yet... I mean, I don't know if we're just going to go through the plot, but there's a... There's a well, there's not much of it, but go ahead. <laughs> I mean, you, made, you mentioned, Elwood, there's this, there's this sudden backstory that comes in. We basically have this this classic moment where Chiba goes in and sort of challenges an entire dojo to a fight for yep. some reason, plot reasons. It's because he's trying to be Bruce Lee. It's like the Jeff, yeah, like I said, they're yeah. doing Bruce exactly. Lee without being exactly. Bruce Lee. But then that gives us... And this this is a classic sort of martial arts and other time. Let's have some bit something a bit more convoluted. And Elwood mentioned it. Turns out that he's from a mixed race heritage right he's part chinese part japanese and we heard about you and this is lovely black and white flashback to the dojo master <laughs> knowing about him as a child but that's really deep because the enmity between japan and the rest of asia is strong still and back in 1974 mate what happened in the second world war between china and and japan you know that that's what the second world war was about in that that half of the world and that just shows a little bit of depth there <laughs> it's not you know we, we did say you know, this action scene after action scene but they, they also try and sort of screw in a bit of uh he's an outsider because he's half chinese mm-hmm. he will not be accepted in japan even now you know being a halfu being being half half japanese and half another race is is almost taboo so to make the hero of your film related somehow to the the worst of japanese history i mean it's usually the other way around that the that the, the enmity comes in is is really interesting also fucking pointless has no impact <laughs> on the plot or anything at all but they they go and spend time and Elwood also talked about the sort of the training the classic training montage yeah. which in this case is his mate jumping up and, <laughs> him and stuff like that and we and again you never really get the friend explained except no. in a sort of a throwaway comment yeah. oh you rescued me in singapore i want to know what happened but <laughs> Unfortunately, spoilers, 
he dies a few scenes later. <laughs> Even the black and white, though. Like, the little boy, like, again, like, I, I understand. But, like, his dad is just taken in. He's like, oh, he's not the one. And then all of a sudden, they just, like, really shoot him quick. He dies fast. And the kid is hardly has much of a reaction. You're just kind of like, I think I'm supposed to have a moment here. But I don't think this is landing for anyone in the audience right now. It was like, hey, we got to have some kind of cool backstory that's going to make people feel something. At that moment, you're like, nah, didn't do it for me. We got some, it's more like we got some black and white film stock to use up. Yes. Let's, yeah. <laughs> let, 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 that's um, the producers have given us this. Let's do it. But it's not totally without soul. Is, no, is, is no. the point I'm trying to get trying to get at. It just doesn't always reach those. It points. doesn't land where like it's yeah, supposed exactly. to. Like it just doesn't have the uh, the impact that you want it to have. Now another thing, and this is what I think you were leaning towards, Mister Palmer, and that is kung fu films have never shied away from ass kicking women but also kicking women's asses they've never shied away and also and maybe you two can talk about this because we kind of tiptoed on this in the first episode that mr elwood was on with me and that is asian films have had heavy sexual assault at least the earlier films this one's no different honey sells a girl who owes him money to sexual slavery and she is raped he then tries to kiss every woman he meets and in a weird twist he kisses the daughter of the oil baron who is repulsed by him but by the end of the film she may become his girlfriend so while Sonny is definitely the wannabe Japanese hybrid of Bruce Lee he's also a very anti-Bruce Lee and definitely a bit of rapey vibes for sure gentlemen please please enlighten us our listeners as to this trope in Asian cinema I, I'm, I'm not sure I would probably talked about this before with you but the attitude to sexual violence the misogynistic nature of their societies even today is not as the me too movement has hit asia and asian cinema but maybe a bit after it hit our culture and just what rape is in asian cinema and in asian <laughs> media in general you know even something like straw dogs right Yes. which is probably contemporaneous with this. Rape is something that is bad. It may have been glorified, but it was never seen as something just sort of casual that your hero yes. might do. And Asian cinema and Asian media in general has a different view of it. This is casual. And although one guy does get his cock ripped off because he's a rapist. <laughs> he does. He does. <laughs> which is another thing that Elwood and I seem to have to suffer a lot. There's a lot of cock ripping in Asian cinema. We have a weird trope of uh, penis trauma on our show, and we have no <laughs> idea how it's happened. Well, the funny thing is, is the penis is ripped off. Like, I know that they, I know this is 1974, so this isn't, you know, we're not talking about the new standards of uh, special effects and practical effects, but it looks not, whatever he's holding looks like some kind of extra chicken bit he got from uh, Butch shop it looks nothing like a dick and it's even later when he rips out the throat it's like it seems like the same piece they use <laughs> it, is, it, it resembles it, yeah. nothing of a human body part at all it's also dispelling some myths about black men isn't it um, um, well i don't want to say my flash you did yes i was like wait a minute yeah no so where i was coming to is it's and it's not just in this sort of casual misogyny this casual use of rape as some kind of action beat it's that it's quite often used in comedy and we, we've seen films where in a comedy film where it's, oh, I'm going to rape that girl. And that's meant to be the laugh line. <laughs> and it's a, it's a cultural thing in terms of the language. And sometimes it might get a bit lost in translation, I suspect. But it also talks to a culture which maybe hasn't quite matured 
as maybe hopefully we have in the West. I don't want to become too woke about it. No, it, no, I know it what you has, mean. It has given Elwood and I some discomfort in some of the other films we've seen. And in this film in particular, I don't think Sonny Chiba's character is necessarily our hero. No, he's just well, our he's not protagonist. A yes, exactly. And, and you absolutely point out, you know, the guy at the beginning that he sort of pseudo-rescues from... <laughs> prison it's his daughter or sister it's his sister Sister. isn't it yes that's right and he sort of sells and there is another subplot there's another subplot where that sort of is also playing around at the same time as the bigger story yes because her other brother who didn't come to pay him he does some weird flying sidekick and johnny chiba ducks he goes out the window and he dies and then she blames him for it i don't know he doesn't just sort of he goes at him but he, he was he leaps miles out of yes. that window. Yes. But, you know, it was, it was just ridiculous and hilarious and wonderful. Yes. And it I think was. There's two, oh, it was. There's, there are two scenes of people falling down buildings or yes. I think Sonny Chiba falls later on, which are, which are quite hilariously yes. low rent. But it's also when you talked about him kissing the girls. He kisses yes. that girl and he kisses, like you say, he kisses the um, old barons, the sort of the... the... Soon as he meets her, he goes there to kidnap her and he's he kissing you've her. You've used the word kiss. I would use the word aggressively grabbed and bit on the lip. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not it's not my kind of first kiss. And I, no. and I, I kind of understand what they're showing. But I I, I think even at the time, <laughs> that's weird. Yes. And, 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 and he's just weird all over. And he's like... He's your, really he's your weird rapey uncle that you don't want to have yeah. come to Christmas. Yeah, the, he's the weird rapey uncle that's got a lot of martial arts gear yes. in a dungeon downstairs, and he's ripped as fuck. But you really don't want to spend any time alone with him, and so it is sometimes hard. You know, you're also meant to see him as the hero, and you want him to win. And sometimes you think the other people aren't as bad as our hero. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So there's this, mm-hmm. but that, that, but that's what kind of makes it kind of interesting as well. But I hope nobody watches this film and thinks I want to be like Terry in this film. No, no. <laughs> it's because he's no hero. You know, help people go see these films so they can see the references and they can kind of you know get see the things that were inspiring Tarantino. But I also want to give him a little backstory because if you've not seen films like this before, I don't want you to think they suddenly. The Church of Tarantino turned into an all-rape festival that's just like, hey, go watch all these Asian cinemas. And then all of a sudden they'll be like, well, why is there so much aggressive sexual stuff going on? You know, because it's not something that happens in the Tarantino versus actually the opposite is when stuff like that happens, a Sonny Chiba character like this in a Tarantino film would find a very untimely and brutal demise as most mm-hmm. rapists in Tarantino films do. So that's the flip of that. It's funny, really, when you look at Tarantino, though, and a lot of his comments you listen to like the Video Archives podcast, it's a very blase approach when it comes to rape and sexual violence in films and certainly yes. when you've seen him like he's shown um, a lot of rape revenge movies and revenge dramatic and as you mentioned already there's been a number of rape sequences in his films and i think certainly when it comes to chiba's character though i think we got the perfect sort of setup for the sort of man he is when the intro man sees sort of like he's a badass he does but gets paid to do bad things to bad people and his whole way he carries himself he's just a thug. He's this primal force. He's not really sort of uh, someone who sees himself in like day-to-day society. He just knows that his lot in life is to beat people up. And that sort of plays well into sort of his like primal sort of nature, yeah. really. 
which is why he's like carries himself as this almost like caveman force and why he can't have like normal relations with women and must <laughs> force himself upon them. Well, even Tarantino writes it into the script and has Clarence say when, you know, uh, Alabama dumps the popcorn and then sits next to him and she's saying, can you catch me up? And she goes, well, you know, who's the guy there? And he's like, well, that's Sonny Chiba. And she goes, well, is he the hero? And he goes, it's not so much a, you know, a good guy as he is just this bad motherfucker likes to beat you up. Like he even says like, he's not, he's not a hero. He's just this dude who can whip people's asses, you know, like, he very maybe blasé about it, but he is kind of saying that, hey, you know what? The Sonny Chiba character, many years from now, if you get a chance to see him and kill Bill, it's not the same debonair nice guy, great swordsman, as uh, as the person who you're going to see on screen. He's kind of like uh, in Fleming's original vision for James Bond, who's just basically a bug in a, in a dinner jacket. And obviously the films have smoothed out his character more, so he's more this sort of like wisecracking, smooth guy. But in the books, he's, as I said, he's just a bug. He's a, an obsolete weapon of the Cold War that they basically keep around because he can get the job done. And I think Cheever is kind of like the extreme of that, where he is just like <laughs> a bug who will get the job done, but it isn't going to be pretty. He doesn't use cunning, cunning words and lingo to get ladies into bed. He just grabs them, kisses them, and there you go. <laughs> More of a caveman approach. But again, he has a code, right? So They all do. A whole the rapiness stuff that, that let's just just plant that to the side disapprovingly more than disapprovingly but he is a, a job for hire right they he, he does what people pay him to do and he'll go and kidnap people kill people whatever <laughs> whatever it is but the reason he actually tries to rescue somebody is because he has a hatred of organized crime so it's all very well for an individual to be an asshole in his world but actually organized crime <laughs> a is, group of them together um, no good yeah. <laughs> now there's a couple of things and so again we'll, we'll, we'll see we see this in other sort of similar japanese films especially there's the code the code of the bushido all that kind of mm-hmm. thing the sort of thing that gives the rizza the chills you know that's the sort of thing that he likes in, in all that. And and so there's a there's an element of that here. There is a point of order, and it may only be in the dub, but he starts talking about that the Hong Kong mafia are called the Yakuza. <laughs> they are not. Nope. The Yakuza are the Japanese yep. organized crime, and they should have called them the triads. But for some reason, I'm guessing it's because it's for an American audience, and it is 1974. Well, they're also we backed by the Italian mafia, by guys who are oh, not yeah, Italian at all. The like They're, they're the, yeah, the least exactly. Italian men you can find. Yeah, absolutely. So there is a, a whole bunch of weirdness. But yeah, he does have, you know, he's not, he's not like a random, he's not totally random force in nature. His code tells him, I don't like organized crime. And you see that a lot in Japanese cinema, right? You can have the worst fucking murderers in the world, right? But what will really float the the directors or the audience's boat is if they're also peddling drugs. That's the worst crime. <laughs> yes. You're peddling drugs. That's worse than murdering a hundred people. Yes. And and I'm not here to have a, a hierarchy <laughs> of crimes list to, to set up, but it's a very Japanese thing. If this was a Shaw Brothers movie, there would be a slightly different rationale going through. The crime that the that they were committing would be somewhat different and maybe more um in fact this is just counterfeiting money. It's yes. it's it's of it's very low on the crime period, uh, cr- crime pyramid, in my point of view. But he really hates it. He'll go. He'll. He'll. He, he doesn't like. Yeah. He doesn't like other people being sexually aggressive <laughs> towards women, and he doesn't like counterfeiters. That's what I got from this film. Before we jump into what the, inf- the references I saw or the influence as well, the thing that also like in the middle of the film, it takes this hard left, and all of a sudden we're introduced to this new Hong Kong gang of like it feels like they became video game characters. Whether there's a blind swordsman, and then there's this. Blonde-haired, almost pre-Eminem, like a like a Hong Kong version of Eminem before Eminem was a thing. He's got this blonde hair, and he just throws knives. 
And then also, I forgot, but this shirtless heavy lifter, I guess. I, these three guys came out of nowhere in this new crime boss <laughs> that the the guy he freed saved so he could fight him later that joined up. It was just like, I was like, who the fuck are these guys? It was like all of a sudden we start a brand new movie when these guys were introduced. And then, of course, the people that he's dealing with, the Yakuza, like somehow they all work together. Like, like it was so like, what the fuck just happened? How did these guys suddenly show up? Any any comments on that? I can give some context for a couple of them. I'm sorry, Elwood, I'm stopping you talking again, so I'm sure you're going to go to the same place as me. The blind samurai swordsman. Yes, he's. I, is, I know the Zatoichi. So, so that's that's very much, that's very much. The Zatoichi, you know, there's, there's something like 47 Zatoichi oh, films. And yeah. I don't mind, and, though, but it was just like out of the blue. Like we're dealing with a crime syndicate. Yeah. And oh, it's, just, it's, just, it's just a thing that they're going to do. It's a game out of nowhere. My, my, my question is, why does he keep getting his sword back in his scabbard? Thank you. All the time. <laughs> Well, obviously, you know what is actually Elwood told me this and this and as soon as I saw him do it for the second time, I was like, oh, I just thought what Elwood said. It's just like in a Hong Kong film when we were talking about the difference between uh, City on Fire when um, Tiger's opening fire on the cops and Mr. White is Mr. White reloads like you normally would. And in a Hong Kong movie, you would do it coolly. You don't just reload. You have to find a cool way to do it, whether it's off a dead man's skull or whatever. And so this was another cool thing. It's like, you know, it's cool to take the sword in and out. So he he put it back in. I look. It looked a bit awkward. But and, can you and, imagine yeah. if the bride did that the entire middle of Kill Bill? We'd be like, "Fucking yeah. hell! Put the goddamn thing down and just, just use the sword." The other fella, the, the 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 blonde guy, as you called it, I think yeah. is meant to be an albino. And again, <laughs> that's a very common trope in martial arts cinema. Um, either they're going to be albinos or they're going to be eunuchs, and that I, I'm I'm guessing it's just it's just playing to that common trope the, the blind swordsman the albino the fact that he throws knives or something is yeah, it almost seemed like they're like the uh, the switchblades like it was the weird yeah. thing he was throwing too it was like he wasn't even just like like throwing like your normal like even a a chinese star it was like the like an american switchblade i was like all right whatever of course, fuck it of course you you've made a very good point that it's like a video game because the oh, street absolutely. fighter yes. street fighter is literally named after this movie yes you know, it um, is they just dropped so, the <laughs> absolutely so and it is my favorite fighting game of all time i will just gladly announce that i'm pretty certain it's most people's although we do have also um the famous x-ray punch which i believe um more yes. combat took off yes so yes so part way through the film he punches someone in the head and just to show how hard the punch was <laughs> we flip to a x-ray of of a hand smashing into well allegedly which is very much like a mortal combat finishing yes. move isn't it so yes it's got it's got lots of video games oh 100 yes this film's influences far exceed anything that's in um a tarantino in, um, film. yeah in the tarantino yeah. film this is i'm a bit ashamed that i hadn't watched it before i had yeah. a ball by the way Oh, right. me too. Me too. I just want to make sure the listeners apart. understand. Yeah. But it's one of those fun movies that you can rip apart, but you're still enjoying because of its its, its ridiculousness, but also it's, you know, like, Sonny Chiba is still amazing in it. Like, he's fucking awesome in it. Like, the best way I could describe the way he looks is if you take Bruce Lee and you take Clint Eastwood from his westerns and put them together, that is who he is betraying. He's got the Clint Eastwood, like, you know, squinted stare and the growl, and then he's, like, trying to do, like, Bruce Lee, but, like, almost like Bruce Lee in slow motion. It's fucking Sonny Chiba. It's goddamn a Tori Hanzo. What the fuck? If you can't enjoy at least that, the man is dead now. If without this film, we don't have Tori Hanzo in that role. So God bless it. I'm glad he made it in. And this was a fun movie for all its craziness. 
this. For all its rapey left turns yeah. and stuff that happens, it's 1974. So you can't look at it through 2023 lies. But you can see why Sonny Chiba is an icon, right? Absolutely. And that's why, and that is why Quentin Tarantino is obviously more Ch- Sonny Chiba films than I ever. He's probably forgotten more than I've ever watched. Yeah. And and that's why that's a that you know in his in his video store period he probably saw 10s 20s 30s of these films and he he recognized that and i i think actually you know one of the good things he has done is you know you talked about him earlier on elevating david carradine elevating pam re 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 resurrecting people who were cultural icons of their time yep you know pam greer was a big deal at the time david carradine i remember watching kung fu yeah didn't realize what cultural appropriation it was at the time because that wasn't Mm -hmm. a thing but um and and, and sonny (laughs) chiba was in that world yeah, he is. and I think even a lot of martial arts fans might not have always been aware of him because he's coming from a Japanese world, and and, yeah. and the sort of the Japanese superstars were in different sorts of movies. They were in the samurai movies. They were in the Zatoichi <laughs> movies. They were in um I can't remember the guy that was in all those movies, but you know uh, the Lone Wolf and Cub movies, things like that. The, 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 the El would often talk again. I'm putting words in his mouth, but you know he'd talk about the pop samurai movies that were popular at this time. It wasn't so much martial arts. Oh, El would have probably said I'm wrong now. No, 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 no. I'm letting you uh, go. No, I was going to step in if you go anything right, but you're fine. Yeah, with the pop <laughs> samurai movies, I mean they obviously paved the way for these sort of more sort of like ultraviolent sort of gangster place. We saw films like this and Doberman Cop. It was really sort of like from this period, it's like going in into these more sort of violent uh, sort of like crime movies and I think it was also paved away by a lot of like the Japanese new waves I mean uh, things such as like Tokyo Drifter sort of helped pave, pave the way by showing like by uh, really sort of glamorizing the criminal element and I think with these sort of films it was sort of like picking up on the sort of popularity with which they were like seeing with like the Hong Kong movies and like obviously with uh, like Bruce Lee movies in particular um, and he was sort of like, well, how can we do like the Japanese version of this? And that was obviously in this case, Sonny Chiba. And I think there's so much of, of his character that is obviously you look at it and it's sort of like, oh, these are sort of like very Bruce Lee ones, but at the same time, it's also Chiba doing his own thing with it. Um, because obviously he's not got the physique of Bruce Lee. He's got a very different sort of physique. It's sort of like more of a wrestler's sort of like uh, boxer's physique. It's very sort of bulky and broad. Whereas uh, Bruce Lee is sort of like very sinuous and Sprite. So I think as the, it sort of pays him perfectly, and I think this is really serves as such a launch pad for Chiba's career because we see him play so many of these sort of roles going forward, especially in this sort of seventies period of his career. And now it's time to present the evidence. So it's time to kind of jump into the influences. Now, obviously, from the first episode and episodes after this, it's going to be a little different because I kind of use them as our investigative materials to show our evidence of if we think he has been referencing or ripping off the movie we're talking about. But since this is a movie that has references in it that are then echo throughout his other movies, I thought it was the perfect chime to kind of, uh, you know, do a Tarantino thing, which is go a different way than we normally do. Now, one of the first ones that I noticed is kind of what you brought up, uh, Stephen, and that is, I believe, and again, he's probably got this from other sources, but from this film alone, the mixed race that we then get to see from Oren and Kill Bill. And like you were saying, like it was a very taboo thing, and it's so taboo that she cuts a man's head off in Kill Bill for bringing it up. So I do believe some of this influence of that moment in that film comes a little bit from maybe this black and white moment where Sonny Chiba's character is 
of mixed heritage. Gentlemen, your feelings on that? Um, I don't think that um, Street Fighter really sort of influenced Tarantino as much as other films that you're probably going to cover over the course of the season, such as like City on Fire and The Killing. I think those are more obvious influences. I think when it comes to the Street Fighter, I think it's more just Tarantino's uh, shown as an entry into, you know, this is the sort of films I'm into. And by having characters sort of reference them the way he does in like, with the two films we're talking about tonight in True Romance, it's sort of like providing that that entrance into this the world. And it's sort of like almost trying to catch people up with things that he would draw later inspiration from. These are sort of like the gateway uh, drug in many ways, because certainly when you look at where he's drawing inspiration from, I would say it's more from the pop samurai films, so things like Nagune de Ginda or Shadow Warriors or Lone Wolf and Cub. The sort of like Kung Fu movies, I don't think he's really, when he turned in with the Street Fighter, because it's such a action crime film. It's not like anything he's really sort of uh, directed before, and certainly all his martial arts stuff we see in Kill Bill is certainly more leaning towards Pop Samurai and Bruce Lee than anything that we see in, like, this movie or, like, Super Ricky O, these sort of, like, more Japanese sort of uh, beat-em-up movies. Mr. Palmer? Yeah, I, 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 I sort of, I do agree with Elwood. I think both of these films tonight I don't see as sort of films that directly influence him uh, compared to many other films that, that Elwood's already mentioned. I do think, though, that is an interesting parallel about the Hafu thing, about the, you know, the, 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 that, that whole Japanese mm-hmm. thing about this bizarre concept they've got of their racial purity, which does not stand up at all. <laughs> when, when you look at the history of the Japan, I mean, it was a kingdom that was somewhat isolated, but Japan's got some issues and they've got some issues still, and it's still impacting their politics today, unfortunately, with things like the the Korean, you know, they, they invaded Korea and there's a whole group of people who are half Japanese and half Korean who live in Japan because they were brought over and they don't have the same social rights as regular people. Mm. They've got the people who live in the North, the Ainu, the sort of the, the Aboriginal peoples are not considered the same. Their skin colour, you know, they've got slightly darker skin, so they're so there's, there's there's lots of issues here. I think you're right. Um, Lucy Liu's character in in Kill Bill and Sunny Chiba in this that is part of their characters, which makes them outsiders, which makes them different to the the normal. He says rabbit earring, <laughs> air quotes, um, uh, Japanese people. <laughs> so, and I am certain, you know, nothing happens in anybody's film by accident. Even if it's a bit gonzo, like Street Fighter clearly is, everything's there for a reason. So I am sure that Tarantino is aware of that within Japanese culture, whether he learned it from Street Fighter or he got it from somewhere else or from just real world experience. I've no idea. He's probably said somewhere. But yes, I think um, it just it just builds up his knowledge and then he plays it out later. And it's But it's a very accurate thing. Sorry, Japanese people, I love you very much. But societal-wise... <laughs> They've still got some they work got some to work do. To Have do. we all? Jesus, I've, I've got I've got two hundred years of colonialism to apologise for. That's not. <laughs> well, there is that number two. The other thing that I did find that again, I'm not saying this is directly from this film, but it's definitely one of the things that is in kung fu films, especially. But it is the oxygen coma technique, along with other kung fu made up techniques that help to inspire the five finger palm exploding heart technique that the White Lotus knows how to do and then eventually the bride uses to kill Bill in Kill Bill. I love that moment <laughs> when he says it's an, it's an ancient auction coma technique. <laughs> I just thought, what the fuck are you talking about? And I just thought, you know what? This is just as ridiculous as the five-finger palm exploding heart technique. I'm not saying it's directly influenced, but I definitely feel this, this along with other 
kung fu made-up techniques that are littered throughout the kung fu universe, that this definitely was another thing that helped to influence that moment in Kill Bill. You two may discuss. Yeah, definitely. I think when it comes to <laughs> magical super punches, it's something that's been a regular trope. First of all, within like Hong Kong cinema, and obviously it transferred over into Japanese cinema, and certainly even into like Thai cinema. When you look at Ong Bak, where he has the little training montage, and he's like, he's like elephants in season, and they're all based around nature. And things, <laughs> when it came, and we see this, and it's a trope that's obviously carried on throughout these films, as I think people yes. now expect to see. Them to whenever you reference it, so like, oh, your tiger style is strong, but my dragon style is stronger. You have fantastical styles that are yes. like based on things, and this carries across even now when you like watch Kung Fu Panda, they're making reference to the fact that all the masters have an animal style, so like monkey style or crane style. But this is like such classic Kung Fu cinema, and we see it in many ways. This is like you can see like the inspiration that this would have in things like Fist of the North Star, which took it to a whole new level with like thousand cracks. Pit, sorry, thousand crack fist punch of the North Star, and I think in so many ways, <laughs> Ken and that was basically them trying to think, well, oh, how can we take Chiba's character in the, the Street Fighter and just like evolve it even more stupid? This unstoppable killing machine. <laughs> and I feel, I kind of like the way that they own, he doesn't like do it for every single move. He hasn't got like a special name brand. Yes, so it's just like there's one or two like special moves that he uh felt like. As I said, that one we see at the start, and I think it's just genius how uh, how you do it. The rest of the time, it's just mm-hmm. like I'm just going to punch you, and it's going to like break your face or your teeth. <laughs> Mr. Palmer, your thoughts? Yeah, um, it's not limited to martial arts cinema. So there is a um, the martial arts literature as well. I mean, not something I've read a lot of, but it, 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 it this goes back thousands and thousands of years before the invention of film. That that martial artists would have, you know these magical powers of which you know the the which you would get through training and restraint and sacrifice and you know the, there's even this sort of the martial arts of stories would take place in this place called the Zhanghu, this martial arts world where there are certain rules and things but martial artists would also be able to you know you've seen Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, right? Oh, yes. All that running across trees and rooftops and half-flying. <laughs> yes. yeah. yeah, nothing in Crouching Hider. Crouching Hider? Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is new. That's just Ang Lee just presenting 2,000 years of martial arts literature and, and the tropes therein. And in those tropes, you know, there's five-finger death punches and, and crazy weapons, you know, like the flying guillotines and things like that. So, again, you'd, you know, some of those <laughs> weapons that you see with the crazy 88 in Kill Bill, yeah, they're not real weapons. <laughs> they're just, but they are these kind of fantasy weapons that are all part of this, this language of martial arts. I'll, I'll call it literature because I want to make it out. It's more than films and TV. It's in it's in these novels. Mm-hmm. It's, it's part of it. And, and again, Tarantino's seen a lot of these movies. He's aware of all this stuff. And he just says, that's fucking cool. I'm going to take that and yes. I'm going to use it. And you, you know, and using it in the, you know, to be fair, he doesn't use it in Jackie Brown. He uses it in Kill Bill, right? Which is the right place, the right place to use it. Yes. But it is, yes. It's, yes. it's part of this tradition of, of, of martial arts stories to have this. And uh, yeah, he's, he's smart enough to know what's cool and what's not cool. Number three. Now for my fans, the opening fight 
from the Street Fighter, as well as the end fight of the film, which is a weird, like it's a big time jump for when they're sitting there talking real quick, is what Clarence is watching in the theater. So when Alabama comes in and spills the popcorn, he talks about, you can even hear him say it in the theater, it's an ancient uh, oxygen coma technique, you can hear him say it. And then after they're talking a little bit and they go watch back up on the screen, he is fighting at the end. He's in his black kimono, it's raining, it's on this ship. And so they really time jump in the film. But those are the two big moments that you can see in the beginning of True Romance. And now it's time to read the verdict. In the case of the Street Fighter, we find the defendant not guilty of the crime of being a talentless hack who rips other people's movies off. Now our second film that we're going to talk about. It's time to call our second witness. Our second witness is the 1987 Hong Kong crime film, A Better Tomorrow 2, written by John Woo and Sui Hart, and directed by John Woo. A restaurateur teams up with a police officer and his ex-con brother to avenge the death of a friend's daughter. Starring Dean Sheck, T. Lung, Leslie Chung, and Chow Yun-Fat, with an IMDb ratings of 7.2, and an 80 critics and 83 audience score on Rotten Tomato. Now taking the witness stand, a better tomorrow too. Oh, as I was speaking with Mr. Jones, I apologize. You were you weren't on yet. Mr. Palmer and I were talking, and this you, again, again, why you are the two perfect gentlemen to be on because you can kind of shed some light onto this. But the majority of this film is extremely melodramatic, as a lot of the Hong Kong films, especially in the eighties, I feel are. You can correct me if I'm wrong. As Asian cinema has grown, some of it has moved away from the over melodramatic. And when I mean melodramatic, I have a couple of friends who uh, live in. Uh, Miami, and I've had the opportunity to visit them, and they are of Hispanic heritage, and I've gotten to see some Spanish novellas, and they are very dramatic, but this movie makes those Spanish novellas look like a Shakespearean play. That is how much sappy music, and how everything is a weepy moment, and we hold on things. There's a moment when Kit gets shot, and his brother is staying in the hospital, and they do these solo shots of him, like, under the red light, looking like he's in a bad 1980s music video. Like, there's a lot of stuff going on in these films that are very melodramatic. So I want to get that out there so my audience listening understands that if you go check these films out, what you're kind of getting into so you're prepared, so you don't just start sending me hate mails like, why did you make me watch this film? So, gentlemen, please give us the knowledge of why Asian some Asian cinema is so melodramatic. Because melodrama is like one of his favorite things, so I'm going to let Stephen handle this one. <laughs> See, over to me, over to me, is it? It's a, it's, it's a cultural thing, I think. Martial arts cinema obviously has had its success internationally, right? But nothing has had success like the Asian melodrama, Korean dramas, and melodramatic soap operas from all over Asia, massive across Asia, but they're also in a massive in the world, all over the world now, right? People are watching, they may watch Squid Game because it's on Netflix, but the next thing they know, they'll be watching something like, I don't know, I, I can't think of anything off my head, but it's it's just really popular. And the and it's not just, it's not just melodrama, it's also these sort of chaste love affairs where the most that's going to happen is a kiss, if you're lucky. Don't get a lot of sex in these films. Yeah, in Better Tomorrow <laughs> 2. Someone has had sex at some point before this film has started because someone's pregnant. Also, the physicality that males will have with each other is very different as well, yeah? So for men to touch each other quite physically, even hold hands in Asia, is not as weird as it might be to Western people. 
but the, the melodrama, the long form story as well. They like stories that go on for a long time, multiple parts. So I think it's it's just a cultural thing. It's it, and it's because maybe they have a slightly different relationship with each other and the way of expressing. You know, it's a bizarre dichotomy because actually, a Japanese people, for example, are famously find it hard to express their feelings. Yet they have there's this real popularity of of melodrama, of sappy love stories or sappy relationships between people, you know, lots of, lots of people, there's, there seems to be no fear of crying within, certainly within their literature and within their media, which maybe is, 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 is a, is a response to how they won't necessarily do it in the real world. So I think there's, there's a bit of that. And what you get here is a, is a crossover. So interestingly, by picking this film, I know you didn't literally pick it. It just happened because of its nature. But you have come across one of me and Elwood's one schisms oh. that I don't like John Woo movies. Ah. And Elwood loves them. <laughs> I'm, I'm no fan of John Woo. And we'll get to this as this film, as, as this continues. But And also there's some some stuff about this film that maybe, can I, is it all right if I put a little bit of context in? Please do. Please right do. Absolutely. So predating this film, John Woo made a film called A Better Tomorrow. Yes. No, no shock there. And A Better Tomorrow was a huge fucking hit. Massive, right? Really popular. It turned Chow Yun-Fat, who was basically a TV star. He was a TV actor. And it turned him into a proper film star. And, you know, he is now an icon. Yes. Of, you know, you know, he's known as the baby face killer. They've all got nicknames. All, all, these, all these people have got nicknames. Not only has it got that, it's got Leslie, Leslie Chung. I don't know if you know who Leslie Chung is or was, but Leslie Chung was the biggest star in Asia during the 80s, right? He's a musician first. If you look at the number of records sold in that, in, in that period, he's up there with Michael Jackson and Madonna. Oh, he's wow. That, he's that big. And that, you know, worldwide. Big heartthrob, as often. I'm sorry, which character did he play? He's Kit. Oh, okay. Okay, so the hands, yep. The, the hunter. Now... There's some backstory to Paul Leslie Chung, and you know he he was gay in a in a culture which doesn't accept yep. still doesn't accept gay people, and unfortunately he killed himself um, in in around 1999, 2000, something like that, because of the torture that he had of mm. holding that in, even though it was kind of an open secret, but wasn't allowed. But anyway, he is the main draw for this film, right? Because he <laughs> is so popular. Just I don't know if you'd have known that. Just no, by watching it cold. So he's he's a big star. The other thing is, is that this movie's the production company, or the sorry, the, the company that made it, not that yeah, I guess it is the called the production company, is um Cinema City. So it's not Golden Harvest and it's not um Shaw Brothers and it's not any of those things. And Dean Sheck, who plays Lung, one of the main characters in this, he founded the studio, right? Hmm. He wasn't in A Better Tomorrow. <laughs> he's, but he's like one of the three main characters and or four main characters in this film. And I'll get into him. Yeah. So so and he is he is an actor of some renown, but yeah. Hmm. Also, <laughs> it's kind of produced by a very famous, well, I think he's Malaysian by birth, but a Hong Kong film director, um, Choi Hark, who has made some of the greatest 
films of this piece. He's one of the main new wave uh, Hong Kong directors or Hong Kong based directors of the time. Him and John Woo have a very different idea of how a film works. John Woo likes that balletic violence, long, long scenes with very few cuts. Yeah, he's, you know, there's the, the some things that John Woo's really good at, and it's that. Choi Hark likes really quick edits and Dutch angles, you know, all that kind of weird stuff. Uh, go, you know, vis- he's much more visually dynamic, whereas Wu likes to put the dynamism in the action on the screen. They did not get on. They could not decide how to cut this movie. And there's a whole bunch of some truth, some truth and some stories about it that, that actually they ended up having to get a third party to cut the film behind their backs. <laughs> and I can't remember if Wu disowned it or not, but he had nothing to do with the Better Tomorrow 3, which is Choi Hark did on his own. So there's 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 a weird sort of friction that's going on between the two sort of truly visionary directors working on this film with some huge stars and a guy that just happened to own the film studios. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, I just, I just I wanted to put that into some kind of context. <laughs> it was very successful, by the way. I, I'm sure I think it, it may have even made... I think it made more money than A Better Tomorrow, but it's not thought of as a better film by most students of... Asian cinema. Elwood may be different. Elwood may love this. I'll let I'll let him speak for himself in a minute. But it's um it's it's a weird old film. And what it made me think of, you know that Tarantino prefers Psycho 2 to Psycho? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes he's just a bit deliberately contrarian. So, I yeah, sometimes just, I think he just does it to rile people up. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a bit of that about this, because I think he said a better tomorrow too. He's like one of his favorite films of all time. I'm pretty certain he's put it on list yeah, somewhere. Yeah, it's in there, yeah. And it's just weird that it wouldn't be a better tomorrow. And if you haven't seen a better tomorrow, a lot of this film ain't going to make any sense to you. Well, yes, that was that was part <laughs> of the problem because like, I went into this watching this one first, and now I'm like, I'm going to go back and watch A Better Tomorrow uh, because, well, we'll get to that. I'll, I'll let Elwood tell us his thoughts yeah, on, on this on, before, I, before I start bringing up the things that I noticed. Okay, uh, well... <laughs> As Stephen said already, I'm a John Woo fan, especially of his uh, Hong Kong cinema years. But I was never a big fan of Better is a movie where would be a freestyle was it not for its finale, which alone is knocking up a hole and really sees Wu doing what Wu does best in it as well. Obviously no doubt coming to later in this conversation, but Certainly, when it comes to John Woo and Charion Fat, they are big inspirations to Tarantino. So much as we look at the screenplay for Reservoir Dogs, they're both named in the special thanks. Tarantino even adopted the look of Charion Fat's character from this movie, walking around in dusters with a matchstick and sunglasses, which must have been a real interesting look if you live on Venice Beach because it's like 100 degrees down there. Not the place you want to be wearing trench coats. But um, no, with this one, it, it's good. So you can definitely see the, the battle of wills between the two directors here, trying to, both of them trying to take control of this movie because obviously one, I believe that, I'm trying to remember which, which way it was around now, but uh, Wu wanted to follow Kit's character and obviously um, wanted to follow our additional character that we have here, the um, gang boss who uh, ends up skipping over to New York to meet Charion Fat's character, who obviously his character in the original film was killed, but this being Hong Kong cinema, there's always a twin brother, a cousin, <laughs> a way to get a, a, a popular actor back into a movie. And that's obviously <laughs> what we have here. And uh, 
It's kind of uh, interesting the fact we got a Hong Kong movie that's got a large portion set in New York. Yes, because uh, normally they would keep our film very much set in Hong Kong. We would go over to the states, so that was certainly something uh, new and interesting. Even though it's just basically Charlie and Pat getting to do his uh, Deli Harry impression um, <laughs> by showing how much he really loves rice. Yes, so I'm glad you brought that up because what I did love about this is how the English-speaking characters are as one-noted as foreign characters have been up to this point in American films. And I also love how the English-speaking characters, their dialogue seems as if they are doing an English dub. Like, they're English dub actors doing really bad English dubs of kung fu movies. That's what it really felt like. It it was so awful. Like, the English actors in here are so one-noted. They're terrible. They're in America. Like, they almost speak as if they don't know how to speak English. They have, like, one single sentences. Like, what you're saying, like, the Dirty Harry moment because of the rice. He's got the gun to the guy's head and the cop. He's basically... The cops told him to put the gun down, and he doesn't put the gun down. He's not going to put the gun down until the guy who threw the rice at him eats the fucking rice. And the cop's like, you better do it, mister. He seems serious. I was like, what the fuck is happening? But I loved how, whether John Woo was doing it intentionally or not, I love that the English actors, when they're in New York, they basically sound like they're doing their own dubs. They have very little dialogue or anything that's good, and they seem very one-noted. And I I just really did love all that about that. So there was that. And... Talking about your boy Kit, we talked about this, and you know, Mr. White in 1992 said that if you get shot in the gut, it's one of the hardest places to die from. Like it takes a long time. And over the course of this, of these, of this season and the beginning of a second season, I've been watching some films, even in Tarantino, where that's not necessarily true. Some people have died very quickly from shots to the gut, and some people have not at all. And what I did notice about Kit's character is he gets shot twice. Seemingly to death, he is quickly rushed to a hospital and then bounces back miraculously in maybe 30 seconds. So I'm not sure if because he was a very famous singer, he also somehow uh, was able to get Wolverine's healing abilities from the X-Men. But he recovered very, very quickly from what looked like two fatal gunshots. Can anyone explain that for me real quick? Um, certainly, if it seems in this film, if you are a main character, then bullets are very ineffective to you. It's, it's, bullets are very much work on the same logic as reloading. Um, in the fact that <laughs> bullets will only hurt you if it's going to add dramatic moments to the film. Otherwise, you can get shot as many times as you want, um, and you will manage to like prolong your life and have a miracle ba- sort of bounce back. But if it's going to be a dramatic moment um, and have a dramatic payoff, then bullets will magic somehow suddenly start working again for you. There is no rhyme or reason to it. It's um, for some reason. We really just love to have really sort of like bloodied up characters who are able to take a lot of punishment, but at the same time, we don't want to hinder what they can do. We don't want to cripple ourselves too much in when it comes to the action scenes. We want to still look for them to be able to perform, but we want them to have like damage and not be uh, too clean cut. <laughs> well, in that pivotal moment where, and I'll get to him in a second, Lung decides to suddenly snap out of whatever the fuck he's going through. Chow Yun Fat's character gets shot in the arm. And it only seems to bother him in that moment. And after that, his arm is healthy. There's there's no residual damage from the gunshot to them. Just like with Kit, he's been shot twice in the chest, probably would have been in the hospital for quite some time and had some major vital organs damaged. And he's back in the fucking car traveling with them again in under maybe a day, maybe two days. I don't know. It's very, very quick. <laughs> so, to, to, to be fair, 
to be fair to the kit thing, I think what they were trying to show is is that his brother is so so what kind of happens is that Kit's an undercover cop. Yes. The worst undercover cop in the world. Let's oh, just be terrible. perfectly honest about it. He literally falls in love with somebody whilst married to his pregnant wife and brings her home one day. He's uh. just yeah, as 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 a heartthrob, he makes some terrible decisions. Uh. But the point is he's so in the first film, the whole thing of the first film, Better Tomorrow, is that Kit and his brother, Kit is is grown up to be a policeman and his brother is a criminal. I think you probably probably yeah. get that. Right? And that's why his brother's in prison to start with. And that's why they offer him the opportunity to get involved in investigating lung scheme as a, as a way out of jail. And, and the card that says, ah, but your brother's there. Oh, no, I don't want a brother involved because they've reconciled <laughs> by the end of the film. But unfortunately, Chow Yun-Fat was killed as part of that. He, he's mm. the death. Anyway, so the point is when he is shot by his brother, because his brother doesn't want to be undercovered as a mole. And the criminals make out that they think that Kit's a mole, even though they they do say afterwards, we didn't know if he was a mole or not. We just wanted to test you. We just picked him. <laughs> that The idea is that he's actually been shot. He's only been grazed. I think that's the idea. So it looks like he's been shot worse than he has. And there's a lot of blood, but he's probably not that injured. But he looks well fucking ill. His brother runs him <laughs> into hospital and, 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 and he has surgery which any of us would be in hospital for six months yes. for right as you say just to kill him off again 20 minutes later yes yes and i'm gonna tell you that isn't the only time i've seen that in the nation <laughs> and he gets shot like he gets shot in a very dramatic scene mm. he gets shot a very uh, an unnecessary long scene you know for some reason he sneaks in to take pictures and the guy just happens to know he's going to be in this weird design tunnel that for no reason mm. that seems to be in the main point that he needs to see and this is John Woo doing a spaghetti western. This is basically a showdown at the OK Corral. He waits for John Woo, that character, to spin around to shoot at him. And they both get off with single shots. And Kit is hit in the gut. And again, this time, he bleeds out and dies, just like Mr. White said he would. And the other character is shot. And we know this because a little blood trickles down his arm. But that's that's as far as that ever goes. That never mm. amounts to anything either. That was pointless as well. So <laughs> it's just like, OK. But yeah. I was like, you know the, what? This the, is 1987. I'm like, you know what? It's, in fairness, Look, who, I, you know, this is if this was 2017, you'd be like, who the fuck made this? Fire them immediately. Don't oh ever no, put this movie still, out again. Mate, it's still going on. It's um, I think it, it just we have you have to accept it as part of the genre, right? The, the, the oh, absolutely. Ballet absolutely. Kind of but I wanted that. to give my listeners who aren't familiar with this you know, an idea of what they get into. Bullets and weapons are as dangerous as they need to be in the scene that they're in. Agreed. And you'll sit in, in that final shootout. You know, they're fucking yes. chucking grenades at each other. <laughs> <laughs> They're shooting three inches from each other, which is which yeah. is amazing. Like I love it. Don't get me wrong, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Just you just have to accept it. Is a it, it's hyper real. That's what we're calling. Yes. It. Well, there's one character I fucking hated, and now that I find out he owned the movie company, I fucking hated Long's character. Whatever fucking psychotic break he goes through, this over melodramatic where at one point he finds himself, like, out of the blue, he's in a psychiatric ward. I mean, that just happens. Like, he goes over, doesn't even know his daughter's dead. That's the other thing is he doesn't know she's dead, but he knows he may not see her for a long time, and he meets up with an old friend, and because the mafia has to get involved, blah, 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 some young well, his, girl who reminds his, his, him his of old, his, his... Yes. His old friend, the gangster vicar. Yes. Yeah, who's now... Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, who's now a fucking priest in America. Yeah. And some young girl who's a prisoner of his reminds him of his daughter when she was young or whatever. And because of him, they get killed. And then all of a sudden, he's in a fucking straight jacket getting, I guess, what looks like... <laughs> 
porridge shoved down his throat and he's losing his goddamn mind and he can't keep his shit together. And then there's this big shootout after Chow Yun picks. Uh, I wanted that motherfucker to die. Like if I was Chow Yun Fat, I would have shot him in the fucking hallway and been done with it. Well, I was so tired of his whole, the whole weepy eating the orange moment. Like I fucking wanted this motherfucker dead like badly, badly. Cut 30 minutes of this movie is Chow Getting, Yun yes. Fat nursing um, Dean Shek's character back to health. I don't even know how they know each other. That's not actually clear to me, but he calls it again, he calls him Uncle, Uncle Lung, doesn't he? Yep. But again, remember, I think as we talked about before, that the familial names in Chinese culture don't necessarily mean blood relatives. Exactly. So it could just mean an older an older guy. But he seems to know him. But remember, Lung wasn't in the first film. No. So there's no reason for any of these people to know anybody, right? He's no. just somebody who's under investigation by yes. Kit. And, and, and he's, well, he's, he's, they do a smart thing that all of Hollywood's done before. You write a line of dialogue that says he was involved 15 years ago. And he's been out of it. Yeah. So they may have known each other when they were younger, when Mark and his brother and or Ken, oh, the yeah. two plays, but when they were it's, younger. But yeah. it's, it's a line of dialogue. It, it, it's, it's no reason for Chalion Fat to completely stop his life. There's no reason for Chalion Fat to be walking by the fucking insane asylum, yeah, let alone. Because yeah, he's... Because it's not even it's not even like an asylum, is it? It's no. like a block of flats, right? Yes. And he happens to walk by and looks through this glass window where he sees people holding him down. As you say, they're force feeding him um, porridge, which yeah. is a real Chinese thing, right? Yeah, that, yeah. that's when you when you're ill or yeah. something like that, you you will have a, a rice porridge. I can't remember what the right name for the rice <laughs> porridge is. That wouldn't happen in New York. I'm pretty fucking certain. Well, <laughs> the great thing is, like I was saying, because you kind of fell off, but I was telling. Yeah. What the American characters are just all one note. They're just they're they're there just to serve the purpose of the script. But I love that the dialogue that they have in this thing is because he won't eat this rice pudding or whatever the fuck he's trying to eat. They're like, we're gonna have to give him a frontal lobotomy, and the one guy goes, yeah, that's probably gonna fix this. Like, what? This is such a jump. Yeah. It just comes out of nowhere. So we talked we talked before about Asians' attitude. Asian media's attitude to misogyny and rape mm-hmm. and things like that. Another thing they're terrible with is mental illness. <laughs> and this is just so everything Elwood and I have seen a thousand films like this. Yeah. You, 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 you put him in a straitjacket. The guys had a hard, hard fucking time. He yes. may have had a little snap, right? There's no, re- no reason to put him in a straitjacket. You put someone in a straitjacket if they're going to be a danger to themselves or yes. someone else. This guy's vegetative, right? Yeah. They, they, they don't need to feed him that way. <laughs> I, I believe even in when this film was made, such things like feeding tubes were invented and stuff yes. like that. No reason reason to do it like this also you mentioned about the um the western characters in this film so i'm pretty certain they didn't film any of this in america or if they did i think it's probably just b-roll yeah it's but white people in asian cinema are just people who've turned up on the whole yes oh no 100 yeah they they just they just they're almost what people would call today npcs non-playable characters it's like you walk in a video game and they just have a a certain line to say and that's their role they're gone yeah oh if they talk at all yeah um the, and the, there's a few of them in this film that it's just like that's awful. It's just it's just <laughs> awful. awful. But that whole section of the film, you know, it talks to that whole melodrama thing you were yes. talking about. It talks to. Well, you know, to <laughs> well, be my fair, thing is, Chow, Chow Yun Fat can actually act, right? Oh, 
the, yes, the he's calm <laughs> when he actually cries. When he actually cries, like I believed it. Like when he actually has his crying moment, and it's not just them putting like onions in his eyes, help tears come down. Mm. I actually believed it. Like when he was actually crying, I was like, oh, I didn't agree with what he was crying about, but at the time, I was like, oh, he's really. I mean, he's really emoting and, emotions. And, 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 rem- and remember what I said at the beginning. So he he's a TV actor to start with. Yes. He made his name in a sort of a soap opera-y, not really sort of a dramery, a melodrama drama called The Bund, which is I think the river that runs through. Um, Peking, Beijing. So, so, but, but that, that's what he was really famous for across Asia. So, the guy has done melodrama. He's far more a straight actor than he ever was a martial arts or, a, or an action star. So, um, you know, we, we may know him in the West <laughs> as the guy in Crouching Tiger, but he really is a, he's a, he's a genuine proper yeah. actor. So he can do that. But this is 30 minutes of my life I want back. Oh. Awful because because and it, it, it serves no purpose. <laughs> well, it starts it just, off with it the just, great. It just keeps lung out of, out of action for thirty minutes. <laughs> I just was wondering what restaurants John would visit in New York City where a two white patrons will say this fucking fried rice sucks and throw it Not only that, but the entire restaurant clears out as if he said, "I've got a bomb under the table." Like every patron gets up and leaves because one guy doesn't like the fucking fried rice, and he's doing this as a trick to like force Chow Yun Fat's character to now pay protection. Well I think they probably realize that he's a gangster for the way he's dressed and the way he's talking. But I, it's pre- still, I, pre- I guess. It's, I'm I'm giving it some latitude there. But yeah, and I I, I like you say, unfortunately my internet dropped out for five minutes. So I, I assume it's all right, yeah. about I'm sure you've talked about the eat the rice scene, which is well, we're getting to that. Very, yeah, it's oh. oh, okay. It's a very famous scene in Hong. You know, this it's probably the scene this film is most remembered for. Really? <laughs> oh, it's, it's the worst. Well, no, no, I'm not it's saying, not the worst. I'm not the worst well. scene is I'm actually well. <laughs> Lung, the whole thing that he goes through after this when he they find him. You're right, and I even wrote my notes. It completely derails the film. Like at that mm. moment, I'm like, why? Why is Chow Yun Fat even spending any time with this asshole? Put a bolt in the back of his head. And let's get into the let's get to the fucking action seconds because I could give two fucks about him. And the funny thing is, is he's crying over a girl, his daughter, that he didn't even know was dead until Chow Yun Fat really tells him about this. And I don't remember how Chow Yun found out about this, but for this film being touted as a revenge film because Lung's daughter is murdered, her murder seems pretty unimportant and so brief. It made me think she pissed John Woo off on set and he killed her off and had to rewrite the thing. Instead, we just added to the film. Like, you know what? Here's the two. Like you said, they would change things up. I was like, you know what? This bitch has pissed me off. I don't know what it was, but she's done. We're killing her and then we're going to just change this story because... Like she's at the, like you said, he brings her over to the, his house. He goes, "This is my girlfriend. This is my wife." And all of a sudden, the next day, instead of like guarding her, he goes off to do something. Comes back, she's gone. She's written some stupid note. She shows up. Some guy turns around, and shoots her, and that's the moment. And now the yeah. rest of the film is like hinged on the fact that she was shot in front of a pool. It was just like I was like, yeah. what "The hell's happening?" And just just to roll back a bit as well. So. When we first meet Lung, he's apparently some ex really good ballroom dancer, <laughs> which is what Kit's that's the way it Kit is. can yep. get into into in, yep. into his confidences and start seducing his daughter so he can spy on him because <laughs> they think he's a counterfeiter. What the fuck is that about? I don't even um, know. What, in what world is hmm, how are we gonna break into this criminal organization? I know, yeah. we'll catch him at the ballroom dancing competition. <laughs> yes. Where it doesn't matter that he was really good at it no. because his daughter's doing it. It's well, just... the key is is that she goes out to dance and breaks a heel, and now what is she gonna do? And then he's like, Well, why don't you oh, take both get... your shoes off? And then she goes. And then the father's like, next year, all the women will be dancing without shoes. I was like, what in the fuck is happening? I, like, I kind of get it, but it's like this. <laughs> 
unnecessary embellishment. Yes. There's a million ways to get Kit to meet the daughter without saying that Lung was also a really good ballroom dancer who never shows any ballroom dancing skills. No. It, it doesn't, you know, in, 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 a, in a film normally, that would be a plot point that plays out later. Something yeah. would have happened that he has to fake it as a ballroom dancer yes. or he has some skills with his feet because he's an ex-ballroom dancer. No, nothing. It's no. just weird. It's just like mm-hmm. John Woo wanted to shoot some <laughs> ballroom dancing. And I can't believe, I can't believe that was a discussion they had in the production meeting. Yeah. The whole okay. young character. <laughs> oh, yeah, I was waiting for Elwood <laughs> to jump in. I knew in a minute. He's like, all right, yeah. you've taken a shit on this film long enough. Yeah. Lung's character is, um, he recently takes his daughter to ballroom dancing because he used to go like to go ballroom dancing with his wife. So he's very keen for his daughter to take up ballroom dancing because obviously it was so important to him and his wife that they yes. really enjoyed ballroom dancing. And Kit even says, I remember you from 20 years ago. And it's kind of like, how young was Kit? 20 years ago to remember this guy dancing yeah. but yes they're also of the older generation where things such as like dance lessons and going to to these sorts of dances would have been the in thing to do it's very much a generational thing it's the same way that Chris will walk in is a dancer because as he points yes. out when he was growing up people used to go to dance lessons this was the in thing I don't know what people do now I guess they go to gyms or something through walking quote there now I will give Elwood some credit here on this well I admit I think John Woo should at dramatic moments. However, he is a master at balls out action. And now I know Elba will disagree, but you could skip the whole film and jump right to the end and be completely satisfied because as bonkers as the ending is, it is fucking awesome. And it is kind of what you see in True Romance. It is just bullets everywhere and cool stylized action that has definitely been stolen in American action films after it that had been used. Like, I loved it. Like, I loved the ending of it. Like, it was worth the movie just for the ending. I, if I wish I'd known, I would have skipped right to the end and just been like, yep. Okay, that was that was a satisfying 15 to 20 minutes. And again, like you were saying, like they're throwing grenades, they're shooting at each other within three inches of each other. There are samurai swords brought in, there's axes, there's all kinds of just crazy gunfights going on and people blowing up, getting blown away. And I thoroughly, thoroughly loved it. And I think that's what John Woo's trademark is, is, you know what, skip all the fancy doves flying in the air and long, longing shots and all that, and just give us 20 minutes of action and it's satisfying. I will let you two discuss as I thoroughly loved the ending of the film. So as a self-confessed John Woo hater, I don't hate John Woo. I just think he's a bit one note. Yeah, the first hour and 20 minutes of this movie can fuck off. That's <laughs> <laughs> how I felt for the first hour and 20. There are things which we remember, like Eat the Rice and, and you know, the Dean, the Dean Check stuff we're going to remember for the rest of our lives for all the wrong reasons, right? You know, we'll all go back and watch One Flow of the Cuckoo's Nest to see it done right. But <laughs> even I've got to admit... That that last 20, 25 minutes, the action, the shootout in the in in the, well, I guess it's like a mansion or something, yeah. isn't it? I, yeah, yeah. It's not really sure where that would be in Hong Kong, but never mind. Is amazing. It's ridiculous. It's, it's over yeah. the top, but it is what John Woo is really good at. Um, Elwood, what was the film that we watched? The John Woo film. Um, oh, the killer. The killer. I had huge problems with the killer. That's the one with Tony Lung, right? Yeah. And I just picked it apart because the story, the character stuff the drama stuff was shit (laughs) i just i would like to do it more than me but the action is amazing and he has a visual style to do this kind of thing 
all of his own. This is pre-doves. Yes, it John is. Wood. Yes, yes, so there are no is. doves flying around. And it's ridiculous and doesn't stand up to any kind of scrutiny. But when Chow Yun-Fat, who is possibly one of the coolest people in the world, isn't he? Yeah. And he has that, that last minute sort of showdown with the guy two yards away from him mm-hmm. where their guns are run out and there's a kind of bit of honour go by where they're sort of kicking the guns towards each other and then they're going to shoot at each other and one of them's going to miss. And it's ridiculous. Holds up to no scrutiny whatsoever. But it's fucking amazing. And it's because A. John Wu is a master of this shit. Oh, and secondly, yes. Chow Yun-Fat is the one of the coolest men in the world. 100%. Right? And yes. he can get away with it. Yes. And he doesn't even look like an action star. You know, he's not bulked up. He's just a normal looking guy with a baby face. You know, he's got that John McClane feel. He's not your Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's not your Rambos. But he's that everyday guy that you can kind of see. Like, he's just got that almost wise ass about him. He's funny, sarcastic. At the end of the day, he'll fuck you up kind of thing. I don't know what it is, but he has that just... That bravado, that machismo, without being over the top. Yeah. Like, he doesn't need ripping muscles, but most people who put a toothpick or a, a match in their mouth looks like a douchebag. But he makes it so fucking cool. You're like, God, I gotta get a matchbook. Yeah. He sells it. He does it in um in the killer. He um he's not only a killer. He also plays the saxophone in a jazz band. <laughs> and <laughs> as you but do, you know what? But you know what? It's Chow Yun Fat. Yes, I'll buy it. You're, oh, uh, yes, it. you're 100% right. Of, of those upper echelon of Hong Kong movie stars, there's no one else quite like Chow Yun-Fat. No. Because he's he's just irresistibly cool. I'm teetotal, and I'd go for a beer with him. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Just, uh, <laughs> I, I'd love to hang out with Chow Yun-Fat. You know, not quite a man crush, but I'm getting there. No. And this is prime early Chow Yun-Fat, and I'll I'll believe anything, right? That, yeah. that he's in. Um, and I'm a big fan of Leslie Chung as well, but I guess they he's not in that final thing because he can't sell that. No. Leslie Chung is all no. about his youthful good looks and his yeah. charming personality. And he's a he's a nice guy as he well. He had his one moment on the boat where he's doing and you're just like, ah, okay. You know, he yeah. just wasn't as believable as when Chow Yun Fat does it. And he's he's in a few action movies and he never completely sells me as an action star. Um, as in, as in um, Double Tap, which is quite a fun film that you should, <laughs> you should check out. But yeah, that, that's not what Leslie... Le- Leslie Chung is a romantic lead, right? That, that's what he is. Whereas Cherry on Fat can be that and an action star. He's fabulous. Um, I'll let Elwood talk now. I feel like... Yeah, I was going to say, Elwood, why don't you give us the wrap-up before I jump into the, the few influences I saw and you give us a better spin on it. Because you know what? It sounds like we just hate on it, but I know you love Mr. Wu. And so, you know what? Give my listeners the pro-Wu stance. The pro-Wu stance here. I mean, as I said already, the main um, drawing point of this movie is that last 40 minutes uh, shootout. Very much in the same way that how bold, the best bit of uh, how bold is that cold hospital shootout sequence. And I think when it comes to a lot of movies, movies the action scenes are often a lot more better than the melodramatic scenes, which tend to get a bit overwrought. And we certainly see a lot of his famous themes within this film, such as the idea of brotherhood and honorable criminals. But the key thing here is the fact that uh, Tony Ching is the uh, action choreographer who is a director in his own right. He did Jewel to the Death, he did Swordsman 1 to 3, he did Chinese Ghost Story 1 to 3 as well. He's also done action choreography for the likes of Shaolin Soccer and Hero, House to Find Dagger, Castle Gun Flat. His resume sort of speaks for itself. And here he's sort of like, as I think we were talking about uh, prior to as get into the meat of this one. The action scene at the end of this one is so good, I gave this film like an additional star. It's also fun when you look at it and you can see Hong Kong health and safety in full effect here. As um, There's a scene where there's a the bomb in the restaurant goes off and the door actually hits the stomach walking in front of it. 
<laughs> which is uh, kind of funny. We suddenly get into like the end scene and we see like Chaiyun Fat being blown up by his own grenade and mm-hmm. him having to like improv that line. He's like, oh, these grenades are really powerful. So yeah, I think certainly when it comes to the action sort of scenes, that's the real draw of this film. I would certainly say that all the dramatic elements are really sort of by the wayside. The plot is confusing as all hell. Um, and it's the fact that we have obviously that big action scene that we're so perfectly highlighted in true romance when we see Alabama. Yes. I forget which state she is. Um, she's there watching, <laughs> like, she's there watching the scene and you see him there doing, like, the like whole, uh, trying to mock, do the kung fu moves to yeah. it. And it is obviously the finale of Better Tomorrow too, which I think is going to be the main takeaway that you're going to take mm-hmm. away from this movie. And it also perfectly highlights the fact that bullets do not affect people unless it's got dramatic repercussions, as we see them being like shot multiple times and stabbed and all sorts of horrible things in this movie. But it's only once we get to the end so we can have them sitting on the couch at the end and the police bust in and sort of like, oh, we've done the work for you guys. We've got bodies of hundreds of people <laughs> here. Even the fish tank seems to have been filled with gasoline the way that thing explodes <laughs> and we now i think there's only a few directors especially in the west who like come close to this we see um like michael bay in particular i think draws a lot of inspiration from this yes. um certainly when you look at the finale of bad boys 2 yes. i think that's like the closest i've seen with like a western comparison anything else that we sort of like think of things such as like the raid is often is basically um western directors going over to the east and using Eastern sort of techniques mm-hmm. uh, to sort of replicate it so they don't really sort of count. But um, yeah, it's just so much fun at the end. And I mean, both these movies that we've looked at tonight feature a, scene, a great scene with an axe in play. Yep. In particular, we have a samurai sword that comes out of nowhere only for one scene, yep. uh, just so we can slice the uh, the axe guy in half. Yep. Again, what's a, what's a samurai sword doing in a Hong Kong movie? Nobody knows, but they certainly use it the same way that we would in the West. Yep. If you use it in the in a if this was a Japanese movie, we'd obviously see that sword used properly when we waved around like a bloody flag, like it is in this movie. <laughs> it's going to be used with like the push pull motion. So it's obviously a two handed uh, sword. But if you see a samurai sword in like a Western in the West, um, or you see it certainly in like Hong Kong. They're just waving it around like it's a normal sword, which is obviously not how it's designed to be used. So, but no, I think uh, I kind of like one. If I was to show people this, it would just probably be that last shootout and say you don't really need to see anything that happened before this. Um, and I think certainly Wu choosing not to make Bear Tomorrow free and going on to make Killer instead was definitely the right decision with that one. And now it's time. To present the evidence. Now, the few influences that I found in here, and again, this is not towards Truman's, but in the Tarantino verse, and this has been confirmed by Mr. Tarantino himself, this first one. Number one. The black suits and skinny tie that we see our heroes wear at the end of Kit's funeral, and then they wear, they basically leave the funeral and go right to this house and start the climax. He definitely referenced and used as some of his villains' uh, outfits in Reservoir Dogs, obviously, Pulp Fiction, and then again, they make their appearance in Kill Bill and have not reappeared since Kill Bill. So those are definite, and I'm sure you gentlemen saw that at the end, and that's the whole reason I hung on to the end, because I knew, and I talked about it about a year ago in a post, that this was, you know, A Better Tomorrow 2 was where he got the black suits and the black tie look for his characters of Reservoir Dogs, even though it's weird, because knowing that, you look back and go, they're barely wearing them. That end scene left such an impression on him that he liked the look of them, probably especially Chai and Fat, and was like, that I'm going to take and put in my movie. Discuss. So bloodied and and relaxing on the sofa yes, and it's yes. framed in a it is I, mean, I, I noticed this as well and that's exactly where my mind went to it 
I'm, I'm thinking that moment, that final scene. Yep. Is it the final scene? I think it is the yeah, final scene. Yeah, it's the final scene, scene yeah. The final, the final shot. It is really beautifully framed. It's got these three guys. They've been through hell. They're wearing dinner suits, basically, covered in blood. And it looks cool as fuck. And I yeah. can see that that would inspire our whole visual story, which is what he did in in, in Reservoir Dogs. So, yep. and, and as the man himself has absolutely confirmed it, we can't disagree, can we? This isn't yeah. speculation. <laughs> <laughs> and the way they turn around, now I'm not saying he, you know, obviously they did a slow-mo for the opening, but I definitely think there was a hint of inspiration maybe added in and how cool it looked for them to walk, but that opening moment in Reservoir Dogs where they're walking out to Little Green Bag because the gentlemen turn around from the thing and they've got their suits and they grab their weapons and stuff, so it's a little different, but I think he saw the coolness of that moment and thought, hmm, I'm going to dabble with that when I get to my own film. Because it's not shot for shot and it's not even that. It's not even a cool song, but it is a cool little moment. They turn around from praying over the grave and then they grab all their weapons and they're headed off to to do the dirty work and there was definitely a little bit of hint of inspiration in that moment as well. It's the only place like the slow motion walk from restaurant dogs as being almost a clockwork orange is that No, agreed. Walk. But I think I think the the look that that the outfit I think oh, what yeah. helped sell it was definitely the way they kind of looked to turned around cool and it was a cool moment because if, if we just saw them you know praying and crying and then all of a sudden you know they're getting out of cars it may not have worked as well but that cool like okay we're grabbing our bags and shit's about to go down there definitely was an inspiration for the look and i agree with you with the the clockwork orange part as well number two and finally the last thing i grabbed from this and as we've talked about uh chow and fat's a big inspiration for tarantino mr blonde chow and fat is the blueprint from this from from just his movies but even in this for mr blonde the toothpick him having instead having the the match just the coolness of mr blonde definitely gets its blueprint from chow young fat in my opinion gentlemen your thoughts i concur completely yeah I can see a lot of similarities. I mean, obviously, Mr. Blonde's a Mr. Cool character until he obviously yeah. shows the fact that he's got the deeply psychotic side. And certainly, we see this with Cherry and Fat's character in this film, especially when it comes to having the standoff with the gangster. He's like Mr. Happy, Happy Go Lucky, he's running his restaurant. Even like the thugs that we think are there to disrupt business are like his friends. <laughs> yes. um, when they're introduced, they're like, they're, they're like scratching things in the table. And you think, oh, he's going to go and throw down some moves now and like, bust them heads and they're like no no these are like my friends and why <laughs> these are my regulars <laughs> why are you wearing sunglasses are yeah. you blind <laughs> um what are you wearing you look like a fool and we see the when we have that sort of standoff with the gangster then we see where he's like when he really gets angry and we see that obviously with mr blonde who's sort of like mr cool mr having a joke and stuff and that but then he shows his real nasty side when he uh comes to engage in a bit of torture let's not also forget this is the film where the chow young fat thumbs up meme comes from or gif comes from which <laughs> yes. you will see all over the place which is, is which he does to kick a couple of times, yeah. which are, Kit, Kit is meant to understand, that means I've had a word with the guys and you're still involved. <laughs> because they constantly want Kit not to be put, I mean, yes. foreshadowing, I guess, yes. in a clumsy kind of way. But yes, yeah, so, so if you've ever seen uh, the Chow Yun Fat thumbs up round a door, this is the film it comes yep. from. Number three. And for those of you, as uh, Elwood pointed out earlier, the portion of the movie that Alabama is watching and doing the kung fu sounds too is the end scene from this film. It's right after her and Clarence get the tattoos and he then has to go off and take a piss and talk to Elvis, his ghost, to go ahead and murder Drexel Spivey. And now it's time to read the verdict. In the case of A Better Tomorrow 2, we find the defendant not guilty of the crime of being a talentless hack who rips other people's movies off. 
So we will wrap this up as I've had a great time talking to gentlemen about this. This has been a lot of fun. I knew it would be a fun episode because we're technically not trying to prove if because he didn't steal anything from this film because it was directed by Tony Scott. But I thought it was pretty interesting, the stuff that he wrote and these inspirations that would be in them. Let's ask our guest some fucking questions. Which of the two films, and whichever one of you want to answer first, may go ahead. Which of these two films that we covered did you enjoy more? And would you recommend either or both to my listeners? I would recommend Street Fighter as a hands-down recommendation. I think you should definitely all go check out the Street Fighter. And if you're like me, you probably want to watch the other two and then go straight into the Sith Street Fighter spin-off series as well. Better Tomorrow 2, if you can find the last 40 minutes on YouTube, then that will be all you need to see in this one because it's very problematic in terms of like its plotting um, and the actual plot itself is nothing to really write home about, but that last 40 minutes is just spectacular. Yes. So uh, that's, that will, I recommend the last 40 minutes of uh, Better Tomorrow 2, but uh, The Street Fighter is hands down a stone-cold classic. And broken record, I'm going to completely agree. I hadn't seen Street Fighter before, and I fucking loved it. I really want to find a non-dubbed copy. That's going to be my new, um, <laughs> my new obsession for the next few weeks to try and try on and YouTube. see it. Then I will look for it on YouTube to do that. And and Sunny Chiba actually as well is someone I haven't. I wouldn't. I watched um the the Bullet Train, which he's in, which is a very atypical role for him. It's not just a train driver. <laughs> he doesn't do anything vaguely actiony really in it at all. It's made me want even even after. How many years we've been doing our show? Hundred odd, hundred plus episodes. I still, this is somebody I want to go and find out more about. Um, it's batshit crazy. It's from a certain Japanese sort of batshit crazy kind of film, and it's very different to our Hong Kong martial arts film. Blah blah blah. A better tomorrow too has not made me love John Woo anymore. <laughs> Although I will say I do love Redcliffe, but that's a completely different sort of film. <laughs> and, and actually, it is very high in the melodrama, but it's a much you know, he's it's full of fantastic actors and fantastic costuming and you know, it's a period piece rather than this I'm just I'm just not a huge fan of his bullet ballet stuff. But um yeah, like exactly what Elwood says. Go and get find the Street Fighter and find the last sequence of Better Tomorrow too. Or go and watch a Better Tomorrow. That might be a better idea. Then then you don't get any Dean Sheck. Did watching these two films open your eyes any more to new references or influences within Tarantino films? Um no, not really for myself. I think when it's come to when it comes to sort of like Tonto, I think he's so ingrained, especially with his cinema, and you can certainly the more pop culture side of uh, of, of Asian cinema. I think there's a lot of things that you see that see within his work, and I think it, it sort of stands out more within obviously Kill Bill One. I think that was the big homage to it, and I think other films such as. Um, you know, like Pulp Fiction, as well, dogs are more sort of subtle in their influences where they're drawing inspiration from like Triad and Yakuza movies. And I think a lot of it's so, it, it, you watch a lot of these and it sort of becomes so ingrained the sort of tropes of these, as you said, like the gangsters wearing, wearing suits or presenting themselves as legit businessmen. And there's sort of things that sort of like you forget are the tropes that they are just because you get so familiar to seeing them over and over again. So I think they didn't obviously, uh, the suits in particular didn't sort of stand out to me as an obvious influence that uh, Tarantino had, had took. And I think when I look at his, the things he draws influence from, I think, as I say, it just leans more towards that sort of like pop samurai kung fu movie side of things, but I think of like his Eastern influences. So I think for me, somewhat similar to Elwood, I don't think it quite often, you know, with a Tarantino, you can see exactly where he's been influenced from. He's, he's replicating a scene, he's replicating a look, he's replicating a character, he's taking a soundtrack, 
or something. Both these films talk to me about more Tarantino himself and the sort of things he was watching and enjoying. I think both these films have also inspired other films, which he's probably watched as well. I think, you know, whatever I might think about John Woo, there is a whole genre called John Woo movies that I know Quentin Tarantino loves and other directors love so he's obviously taken i actually think you're spot on with maybe some of the mr blonde stuff as well i think chow you know you asked me at the beginning somebody that i'd like to see quentin tarantino direct love to see him direct yeah chow young fat that would be um like a mature chow young fat ex-gangster something like that that would be so fucking cool. Um, I'm not sure what Chow Fat's English is like. He has done some American movies, he has, hasn't he? Yeah. yeah. These movies helped him. Like, he was in a couple of movies towards the end of the 90s. He was in one with... Um, was he in Bulletproof Monk with... Yeah, um, but he was also in one with Mark Wahlberg, where he plays, like, Mark Wahlberg's an undercover cop and tries to bust Chow Yun-Fat. And it was actually a pretty damn good movie, so... Yeah, I mean, he should, he should have fairly... Yeah, being a Hong the, Kong, um, yeah. Yes, the Corrupter, that's the, the name of it, yep. And uh, he did replacement killers as well, which were like yeah, more in right. tune yeah. with his like Hong Kong movies. And then he started doing things like Bulletproof Monk, <laughs> and then he was like, maybe time to go back to Hong Kong. <laughs> yeah, but is it you know his English should be reasonable being a Hong Konger, so I, I don't think it would be on the wit of man. So I think Chow Yun Fat has probably been an influence on Tarantino rather than this film itself. And we obviously know that he loves Sonny Chiba because. Mm-hmm. Because he he's in his film, him. yeah. <laughs> he went and bought him to um to be the Hansai analog. So yeah. My last question. I kind of phrased it a little different when I sent it to you, but I'll try to rephrase it this way. After you watch the influences that Tarantino has, and you kind of know how the sausage is made, so to speak. Does it change your opinion on Tarantino as a writer director? And if so, in what way? Well, I think it just backs up what I said at the beginning. You know, to me, Tarantino is a guy who's watched a lot of films and a lot of varied films. To his credit. You know, some directors only watch stuff by Bergman. And, you know, you look at someone like Woody Allen, right? Whatever we may think of Woody Allen as a person, he's a great filmmaker, a great comedian, but his filmic influences are quite fucking narrow. Tarantino's filmic influences are not necessarily artsy, although I, I know there are some artsy films that he likes, but he is he takes it from the breadth and the depth, you know, of, of, of film. He he will take influences, he will enjoy films from the creme de la creme of film snobbery down to trash cinema, right? And I'll give him utmost credit for that. So I think, yeah, I think this is just confirmed, really, or, or helped confirm the thoughts I already had. I mean, I'm a self-confessed, obviously, I'm a fan of Tarantino's films, and I like the fact that when Tarantino will introduce an element from another film, that film will finally get a release over here. I mean, I think the fact that the Street Fighter trilogy got a release over in the UK is just based on the popularity of True Romance and it being in that opening sequence, and everyone's sort of hankering to see it. And I think you see it time and time again, like when Tarantino references something, and that that film will mysteriously get released finally. So I appreciate that point, the fact that we got the likes of the original Inglourious Bastards or Thriller, a cool picture, all getting releases just on the back of Tarantino referencing them. And I think when it comes to his, as a writer, um, I think it's in the previous episode, is the fact that myself, it's just how he scrapbooks ideas together. It's not so much the fact of him drawing inspiration or stealing ideas. It's just in the fact that he takes all these great ideas from the cinema he loved. And the interesting part is how he puts it all together and turns it into something new. We can say he's a, he's an auteur collagist. <laughs> <laughs> I think Elwood's uh, phrase is, he scrapbooks. And I actually love that phrase of it. 
And that's a wrap on this month's episode. I would once again like to thank my special guests, Mr. Elwood Jones and Stephen Palmer of the Asian Cinema Film Club podcast for joining me today. I had a fucking blast investigating whether or not Tarantino referenced or blatantly stole from the movies that influenced his films, as well as taking a look at both The Street Fighter and A Better Tomorrow 2. Now you can find the link to the Asian Cinema Film Club podcast and the show's socials in the show notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials. Those links can be found in the show notes as well. Now if you'd be so kind as to give the show a rating and a review, it will help more Tarantino fans like yourselves find it. And I would greatly appreciate your support. Now be sure to join me again in two weeks as Pat Fournier, co-host of the B News USA podcast joins me for our monthly hymnal devotional as we take a deep dive into the true romance soundtrack so until then i'm the reverend scott k may tarantino be with you always this has been a man with an exceptional beard production.